everybody, this is Amanda from the Made for TV Mayhem Show, and tonight we're going monster hunting with two classic made for TV movies from the 70s. We're gonna do The Night Stalker, which you probably guessed by that beautiful detective jazz theme song I just played. And we're also gonna take a look at the Norless tape starring Roy Thinnis, aka my husband. So tonight is gonna be a great episode. So let me go ahead and just get right into it and let me introduce my co-host, Dan. How's it going? Dun, 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 it's dun, addictive, dun, dun, dun. isn't it? It, it, really, it really is, because whenever I watch the movie, I always end up standing up and walking around my living room, just going, dun, 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 and my dogs are behind me, and they're strutting, and it's a good time. Yeah, do, do, you act like, do, you, do you act like you're in a mosh pit and try to mosh with your wall? Because that's what I want to do when I hear <laughs> Sometimes I will. I'll run to the wall. When I was a kid, I used to run into doors a lot, which probably explains it. <laughs> well, that says but, a lot about you. Yeah. So, you but but the, I I will sometimes do that thing. Yeah, where you just run up to the wall and you leap up in the air and you kind of like try to freeze in a pose on yeah, the wall for it's a like split a really second. Really vanilla. Chest bomb, but yeah. it's only one milli or vanilla. Ex- yeah. Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. And uh, we're but, also. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh no! I was just going to say, uh, and uh, I was going to say, my dogs. Sometimes I'll throw them up against my chest, but it doesn't. No, you don't so. want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not cool. That. That's not cool to say to a vegetarian. Ouch. Yeah, that's that's the right thing to say to a vegetarian. <laughs> We're also here with Nate, who does not throw dogs up against his chest or slam the wall. I imagine. Hey, Nate. Hey, I'm a little bummed that um, my dog probably won't be able to protect me from the night stalker. Oh, I know. Or the Norlis oh, monster. Gosh. Oh, you didn't see the Norlis tapes, though. No, um, I am going to watch it, though, because I've heard a lot of good things. It's amazing, but there's some doggy stuff in there, too. I actually oh, think no. it's super hardcore in Norlis, but we can, when we, we eventually get to one year, five minutes, which I don't believe exists. So, like, wait, are you sending teletype? Are you doing your Darren McGavin cold chat for us? <laughs> I, I'll be actually, Vincenzo. I'll Nate, actually... what are you doing? <laughs> Pulling it up on um, YouTube because I like to play it while we're talking. Okay, I just hear this, which is actually perfect for this episode because it's mm-hmm. all kind of about writing and typing and or recording. I guess we should just jump into it. I can't think of anything else we need to t- talk about. Like, there's no house cleaning we need to do. Is there? Is there anything anybody? Needs no, to- no, no. Oh. I don't think so. Actually, you were going to give us your five minutes with Nate on Duel. Do you want to just give us like one? Sure, I I will just say that I absolutely love Duel. I think that it's one of those movies that's very tense, and I don't think the tension, once it starts, it doesn't let up. Mm -hmm. And I just love, like, the chess moves between, you know, it's very much like a, you know, like a game of chess between the two. Um, And I also love the fact that we never see the truck driver. I think that makes it more frightening. That's a great analogy. When you said chess moves, I thought you meant chest moves, like Millie Vanilli. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, they kind of do that a little. Look, I'm not doing it anymore with the dogs. I stopped. I stopped. All right, I'll let it go. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's really good. And it's um, one of those movies that I think doesn't age like i think i think you could watch that now like you could sit down some 15 year old kid you know who's like all bitter and like i don't watch anything before 1997 and put that on and i bet they would enjoy it you know what i mean it's just a time film. i agree i mean i think that um i I can't imagine anybody finding it dull or boring uh, that would be surprising to me i mean i'm sure people do there are people that do but i can't see how So, are you wearing your ascot and smoking jacket? Oh, unfortunately, I'm not wearing my ascot or smoking jacket. Are you wearing anything? 
I am wearing something. Oh, sorry. I thought we were going somewhere else. <laughs> we're not. Uh, no, we're not. Uh, not doing the nude podcast okay. this time. That's a, that's a different show. That's a different. We'll get to those movies later. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Nate. I'm glad that you got to say some stuff about that because I know you. you're a fan of it. Um, and hopefully you'll see the Norless tapes before our next episode. And we can give you another. Uh, yes. I will. Okay, uh, let's just go into this. May I introduce myself? My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. And I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. January 11th, 1972. Thank you, ABC, for bringing us The Night Stalker. Produced by Dan Curtis. Uh, The screenplay is by uh, good old Richard Matheson, based on an unpublished story, but now published, uh, by Jeff Rice. And it's directed by the great John Llewellyn Moxie. The Moxie. Um, Hashtag The Moxie. Hashtag The Moxie. Las Vegas. Home of Amanda Reyes. That's right. I, I forget whether it was on this show or the other show we do, Podcast Mania. Amanda, at one time you talked about growing up in Vegas and calling it a small town. Yes. And then you said, I know it's Vegas, but it's, it was, it's really a small town. And they make a, and they make a point in here, Kolchak and Vincenzo, and I'll tell you who they are in a moment, but I know I'd forget this point if I let it ride. Because Kolchak, who is the reporter played by Darren McGavin, who you heard yelling a lot wonderfully in the promo. Um, he was apparently a big time reporter at one time. And now he's in that backwater burg of Vegas. Yeah. Cause that's what, that's what, that's the way they treat it. Cause his editor says something like, I know you want to get out of here and go to New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, but you're stuck here in Vegas. And he is stuck there in Vegas. And luckily for Vegas, because someone is killing women. Yeah. Luckily Vegas. for Vegas. Luckily, <laughs> luckily for Vegas, they've got Kolchak. Yeah. And, and um, someone is killing women in, in Vegas. The whole movie begins in a grimy hotel room. And Kolchak is recording something into a little, little tape recorder. Chapter one. This is the story behind one of the greatest manhunts in history. Maybe you read about it, or rather what they let you read about it, probably is some minor item buried somewhere on a back page. However, what happened in that city between May 16th and May 28th of this year was so incredible that to this day, the facts have been suppressed in a massive effort to save certain political careers from disaster and law enforcement officials from embarrassment. This will be the last time I will ever discuss these events with anyone. So when you have finished this bizarre account, judge for yourself its believability, and then try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, it couldn't happen here. Women are being killed, drained of blood. The authorities in Vegas are going a little cuckoo over it, uh, whether it be the kind of slimy DA. Uh, what is uh, Claude Aiken's character, I believe, is, is Sheriff Butcher. Oh, which is a great name. Which is a fantastic yeah, name. Yeah, kind of funny. 
uh, police chief. There's also a uh, Kolchak has a good friend who's some sort of I never quite figured out what he was. Is he a government agent? That one guy. Oh, you no, know, that's a good question because I think I didn't figure it out either. Uh, Kolchak is a very dogged reporter. He's a very good reporter. He's constantly getting yelled at by uh, Simon Oakland playing uh, Vincenzo. It's not he doesn't get yelled at by Simon Oakland, the actor. He gets yelled <laughs> I bet at he by. Did. He probably did, um, because he's always like he's. Um, uh, it begins with Kolchak being called uh, back from vacation to investigate the killing of a cocktail waitress who had her body drained of blood. And Kolchak, it's it's very much sort of old style, sort of cool. Like uh, like one of my favorite uh, movie reporters is Torchy Blaine from the uh, Glenda Farrell from the late '30s, and she's always got all these connections and all these different places she goes to unravel what's going on and what's happening. And Kolchak does this, and the more Kolchak discovers, the weirder it gets, and more women die. More women are drained of blood. There are strange... Well, whoever the killer is, is very strong. And they they finally, uh, several minutes into the movie, uh, there's a big meeting. Um, 6.30 p.m., Clark County Courthouse. Present, in addition to myself and two incompetents who call themselves reporters, were Warren Butcher of the Sheriff's Office, Thomas Payne of the District Attorney's Office, Captain Edward Masterson of the Las Vegas Police Department, and old buddy Bernie Jenks, holding forth with his inimitable cool, Dr. Robert McCurgy, boy coroner. We found that death in each case was extremely swift, coming in something less than a minute. After the initial wounds were inflicted, the blood was drained very quickly, some kind of suction device being used. Now, this would explain why no blood was found anywhere in the victims or in the areas they were discovered. Uh, Dr. Kolshak, Daily News, do you have any idea what could have made these wounds? They're not unlike the bite of a medium-sized dog. What do you mean, oh, dog? What? Dog? Dog? What are you telling us a dog did these murders? I didn't mean to indicate that the wounds were actually inflicted by a dog, only that they're similar to those which might be caused by a dog. A rather interesting point is that we found another substance mixed in with the traces of blood in the throat wounds, namely saliva. What do you mean, saliva? I mean saliva, Sheriff Butcher. Human saliva. That may be the only time I've ever taken Larry Linville seriously. <laughs> Except when he's dating Charo. All right. Okay, yeah. all right. I was gonna. I was gonna say, what a collection of jackasses! Oh, I know, but they're, they're what a collection of great character actors too. Oh, it's it's literally the 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 scenes. The the movie kind of goes in a cycle. It's killing, uh, scene between Kolchak and Vincenzo, and like a town meeting, killing da da da. And every once in a while, they throw in a scene with uh, Kolchak and his girlfriend, pl- played by oh, Carol Lindley. Yeah. But it sort of goes in a cycle as it goes along. With each time we. Re- each time we return to the boardroom in a meeting, Kolchak has more information you know, on what's happening. I'm pulling this out of my ass, but it's interesting that I didn't pick that up, that it sort of moves in a circular fashion, which mm. is like Kolchak tapes, which is what this was originally called, oh, yeah. right? So mm. I think that's really interesting. What occurs as it goes along is the realization from that clip that the kill at first... It's the killer thinks he's a vampire, and that's what everyone believes. We've got a killer on our hand who's very strong. He thinks he's a vampire. Uh, the all the all the constabulary there want everyone to sort of keep keep this under wraps, mainly because they don't seem to know what the heck is going on. But then, as it goes along, and Kolchak learns more and more, he comes to believe. And this is one of the joys of the Kolchak character because it's believable. He comes to believe, and he's correct that there is a real vampire 
living in Vegas. Things sort of build and build uh, until a point where um, he meets with everyone one more time, the gang. Okay, so, Kolchak, you've got yourself a deal. Conditional. What's that? Put you here, we'll issue the crosses, the mallets, the stakes. The one thing he won't do is depart from established police procedures. If feasible, Scorsini is to be taken alive and held for trial. Trial? That's right, trial. <laughs> trial. All right. In return for what? You'll get the exclusive rights of the story. Good. Uh, when the blackout is lifted. Yeah. Any other conditions? Uh, one more. What's that? If it turns out you're wrong, you're to be out of town in 12 hours. Take it or leave it. All right, I'll take it. Uh, because I know I'm right. And uh, you know I'm right. Right. And that long pause before he takes it, he, he has a look on his face like he knows there's shenanigans that are going to occur no matter what happens. That's the way I always took that look. Oh, but he's going to take it because... Um, one, he could get a great story out of it. Two, it's it's the right thing to do. And uh, and three, there's really nothing else he can do. Yeah, and the movie builds. I know I talked about this movie back in our very first episode so long ago. Yeah. So I, I I don't want to go too deep into a description again. It all ends in a, con uh, in a confrontation in a lovely suburban home right outside of Las Vegas that happens to have... A vampire in it, <laughs> and and I'll, I'll let the uh, I'll let the um, the curtain drop there. But it's it's fantastic. Well, you know, it's really interesting. So you can't take any clips of, and I can never say his name right. I want to say Scorzeni. 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 Yeah, I I wrote it down, and then I don't know where I wrote the pronunciation down. You know, there's that scene. So he's in and out of the film, you know, and they and they spend a little time with him, so you figure out that he's really creepy. You get a good look at him, not too far into the film. They're not hiding him. But there's this great scene I want to talk about at the hospital. Oh, yes. Where he goes to get some blood, which is kind of interesting because he's killing women, but he's also going to the hospital, right, to get... Is he stealing yeah. blood? Yes, he is. Definitely lots and lots of blood. And yeah. um, and there's this amazing scene where he's attacking the nurse and some of the OR guys or whatever. And he goes outside and total chaos just hits and there's police cars and he's going crazy and he's pushing people and he's running past cars and cars are crashing each other. And like almost all of that scene is done in one shot. Yes. And it's like, it's seen, it looks like it's possibly a handheld camera. Yeah. It's brilliant. So, so, and it's, it's really, it's, it's like one of those action scenes that it's just like, ooh, you know, but well, this was the, what, this was the year after French connection with its big car chase sure. and everything. So that kind of upped the ante on, um, on how your action films look, but it's um the the only the one thing with that scene that uh, uh, I love but is a bit iffy is there there's a sequence where uh, like an orderly um, attacks him in like a, a Scorzani in like a file room or something, and the camera's overhead and it's really violent where he's throwing the guy against the file cabinets right. and the file cabinets are all pulling down. Except if you pay attention, you could see the stuntman grab the file cabinets <laughs> and pull them down with him. Which maybe maybe that's I don't know what their training is like in Las Vegas hospitals. Maybe if if a yeah. vampire throws you against a cabinet, pull it down. I don't know. You know, my mom but, was a nurse. Oh. And I never thought to ask her that. <laughs> uh, it's one of my big regrets. Nuts. Nuts. <laughs> it's it's a movie, I think, that has a lot of wonderful, uh, creepy and scary moments in it. Like the, the first woman who's killed, um, 
in an alley. Yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a lovely scare. Much of the closing sequence where uh, Kolchak is creeping through the vampire's house is extremely eerie. But then they throw in two big action scenes. There's that one at the hospital. Then there's another one where he's like uh, chased into a suburban backyard right. at a swimming pool. And he like beats up like 40 cops and keeps throwing them in pools and everything. And it's, That's it's, right. It's, there's a goofy line at the end of that, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> like they're interviewing somebody and I think he says something. It's it's reminiscent of that scene in The Norless Taste, which we'll talk about the couple in that. I feel like there's okay. a line like that. But it fits better in... The Night Stalker, because one of the things the Night Stalker has that Norlis tapes is almost completely bereft of is humor. Yes. So when humor shows up in the Norlis tapes, it's odd. Yeah, but, it really is. But yeah. in this film, you kind of expect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, and it's Darren McGavin, so you expect, um, you know, you ex- you kind of expect him to be, uh, you know, brave and and smart and uh, and you know, be a little witty and charming well, here and there. He's very beleaguered and world weary, and I think his humor is what gets him like to to stay sane. Yeah, in a lot of insane situations. It it is funny. I don't. I didn't realize how much like Vincenzo, his his editor in chief. They they literally he's like just in the same room or two, yeah. like throughout the whole. So it's just like there are like four scenes, maybe five, where he he goes in. They have an argument, and Kolchak storms out. I wonder if they couldn't and- afford Simon Oakland because he was so famous. Because he would go on to be in several Quincy's as the angry guy. He was in a great Ellery Queen mystery as as a jerk who gets killed, he, uh, possibly by a mummy. I think he always plays a jerk. Yeah, I think Vincenzo is lovable, but um, I feel like in the series he's they have a better relationship because I watched yes. the Spanish Moss Monster episode. Oh sure, yeah. over the weekend because that's the one I think I remember seeing as a kid, and he's having I don't know how well you remember the episode, but he's having like a he's getting an award or he's giving a speech. Oh yes, I and know. he's inviting Kolchak to come to the after party and like mm-hmm. they, it feels like they have better camaraderie in Chicago than they did in Vegas. Maybe they prefer Chicago to Vegas. I don't know. They might. They might. What do you want, Vincenzo? A testimonial from Count Dracula? Out! Get out! What is this out-out get-out game we play? This nut thinks he is a vampire. He has killed four, maybe five women. He has drained every drop of blood from every one of them. Now, that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. You know darn well why we're soft-petting this thing. No! Tell me why. Could it be because we have been told to? Kolchak, you are an idiot. Worse, you're irresponsible. All these murders mean to you is a bylaw. Well, what the hell difference does it matter what it means to me? The point is that we are suppressing news. We are withholding information. Everybody in town knows what's going on. The police, the DA, the coroner's office. Every reporter on every newspaper in Las Vegas knows what's going on. The only people who don't know are the people. At last you got the point, Kolchak. The people in Las Vegas don't know. Because the people in Las Vegas would come unglued if they did know. Even more than they're coming unglued already. Capish? I think there's something really interesting in this scene, kind of revealing in that Kolchak really is in it for the byline. And I think Mm -hmm. you see that when the mother finds the daughter's body. Oh, yes. And he makes kind of a joke. And then yeah. the cop or whoever's there is like, quit it. That's her mom. And he's yeah. not, he's definitely not a jerk to the woman when he's talking to her. But there's mm-hmm. definitely like a coldness. I don't want to say cold because yeah. it's not a cold character, but there's something there. He's a, he's a little removed from the human factor in some ways. He's, yeah, he's very much like the descendants of, of reporters from movies past yeah. who just happens to run into a descendant of monster movies past. Yeah, and didn't. Didn't Dan Curtis or Richard Matheson say that this movie reminded them of like a cross between the front page and Dracula? 
I think so. Yeah. yeah, that sounds correct. Obviously, when he finds the woman at the end that's still at the house, which is horrifying. Yeah. I'd yes. much rather be killed by that guy than be taken to his house and God knows what. Yeah. You know what I mean? Drained of blood every Who knows every what that guy's hours. doing. Yeah. yeah. You know? And he's he's obviously very, like, he's very gentle with her and he's very reassuring. So I don't mm-hmm. think he's a jerk, but I do think that there is, like, the story is number one. And I think mm-hmm. even when you see his relationship with Carol Lindley, it progresses past that. But yeah. I think at the beginning, it's really about getting the story. And then she becomes more important to him, I think, as the film progresses. Well, she's Carol Lindley. What are you going to do? Oh, my gosh. She's the best. She's, she's got that look on her face where it's like, Carol, can I get you something? Yeah. I, <laughs> I know. She always looks like that. You know, I, I do want to talk about Carol Lindley really quick because when I was researching this for trivia, you know, there's an awful lot about Darren McGavin. And there's some stuff, obviously, about Dan Curtis and Richard Matheson. And the guy who originally wrote it, I think, is Jeffrey Rice. There's all kinds of stuff. But there's nothing about Carol Lindley. Like, there's no – nobody's ever really talked to her about it. I mean, I'm sure they have, not maybe I didn't find it. But, I mean, like, it just feels like she's sort of forgotten in sort of the history of the film. Huh. And I think – That's that- strange because they did that four-volume uh, biography of Claude Akins. Are you joking? I am joking. Okay, because I was like, I want that. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, I do want to put it out there that Claude Aikens looks a little bit like my dad. Oh, wow. So I have a real soft spot for Claude Aikens. <laughs> oh, my dad sure. was much smaller, but um, he would look like a cross between, if you can picture, Charles Bronson and Claude Aikens. <laughs> so he was like a real, like, you know, don't fuck with me kind of guy. Even though he, wasn't, he had the gent- most gentle heart, but he kind of looked like that. I think Carol Lindley is really important to the film because I don't know that it's got such a tragic ending, which we can talk yeah. about. And I think part of the tragedy is that how much he wanted to find her. Yes. Because it ends with her disappearing because the government bureaucracy sort of makes her disappear. And he's obviously heartbroken about it. And he goes everywhere putting in these newspaper ads Mm -hmm. to find her. And then he finally just runs out of money and options and she's gone. And I think without that relationship, uh, the movie, I don't think would have had quite the impact that it had in terms of the character. And it's lovely, too, because it's never um, it's just, you know. They're they're a couple, and it's never like um, you know. Isn't he kind of uh, much older? And yeah, but they make, they make sense. Like she, yeah, they do make sense. They're a lovely couple together. Yeah, yeah. I never question his age, and I think mm-hmm. I wrote a thing and I posted about it on Twitter. If anybody wants to look at it, but I did a, I was part of a tribute to Darren McGavin when he passed away for Horror dot com. Um, I wrote a thing about that. There's something about Darren McGavin's personality and his charisma that you don't question. Him yeah, with beautiful women. Agreed. Hey, hey, Nate, what did you think? You watched you watched this for the first time, didn't you? Oh yes, I really, really liked it. Oh, um, tell me more. Woo-hoo. Well, first off, I wondered how the Night Stalker was able to get, um, you know, him. Well, actually, I should rephrase this: how Morticia Adams in the Adams Family movies was able to get the same lighting that the Night Stalker got. <laughs> <laughs> you know, only his eyes are kind of lit up in a yeah. lot of scenes. I also mm-hmm. thought it was interesting that the uh, orderly, when he runs in there to confront the Night Stalker, he just punches him like right off the bat. I mean, it's no like, what are you doing yeah. or <laughs> anything. It's just run in and punch him. <laughs> yeah. That guy had a short temper. He already had like a list of write-ups. It just kept handy <laughs> this one time. <laughs> the uh, Night Stalker, I thought myself, I thought, man, he's really bold like just right in this hospital. But then when I saw him basically beat up the hospital staff and all the police officers, I thought, okay, I can understand why he's so bold. <laughs> yes. It was just that easy. I thought the scene was really creepy with, um, um, the woman, um, you know, with letting her dog out of the car because I mean, oh, yeah. you could tell by the look on her face, she was sure that that would scare him away or the dog would right. attack him. And, and like, it just doesn't pan out that way. 
And I thought that was actually kind of a very creepy scene in the film. Um, I thought the climactic scene was really well done too. And I, I love Darren McGavin. I mean, when Wes walked in, when I was watching it, he was like, is that the old man from Christmas story? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yep, that's him. <laughs> he's, he's great. He had an amazing career. I just found out he was on an episode of love boat with his wife. Oh, wow. So I'm going to have to find that. I'm sure we have it somewhere in somewhere in this house in the art in the archives in the amanda archives yeah that's here somewhere but i don't i don't actually remember it but i was like ooh, i have to see that but yeah darren mcgavin's great i think you could put him drop him in anything and you know what's really interesting i'm gonna go just off topic for a second but there's a um daniel Steele adaptation oh shit what's it called it's got robert urich darren mcgavin and the lady who plays patty on young and the restless i think her name's stacy haddock and Stacey Haddock is like 20-something years old, and she's married to Darren McGavin, and he's like 60-something. And he's dying, and she meets Robert Urich. And mm-hmm. it's like she wants to be with him, but she can't because her husband's dying. And who would think to throw Darren McGavin into like this Daniel Steele romance movie? But they do, and he's fantastic in it. And and like I said before, like yes, it's very questionable. Why is he with this beautiful 20-something-year-old woman? But it also works. He makes it work. You know what I mean? He makes it not seem so creepy. He, I just remembered he was also um, in the original Six Million Dollar Man movie. Oh. He plays the uh, sort of Oscar Goldman character in it. Oh, I don't but remember that. And we just watched that like last year. He was, yeah, yeah. He plays the guy, that what Oscar Goldman does when the series begins. Oh. He's, he is in the first movie. Mm-hmm. It's a very different, he has a very different feel to him. He's not as warm and sort of congenial. He doesn't um, call anybody babe. He doesn't call, hey, babe. He, no, he does not. And I, I can, you know what's funny? I could hear when he's yelling at Vincenzo. I think he channeled that when he played the dad in Christmas Story. I could, re- I could really feel that sort of <laughs> the way he was. This is news. This is news. I could just feel that, like the, the dad yelling. Do you think you just picture Simon Oakland whenever he has to channel that anger? <laughs> probably. They're probably great pals. You had to love Simon Oakland. Nobody can be that curmudgeonly in real life. He must have been a sweetheart. Yeah, when your almost sole interaction with another actor is yelling at them and them yelling at you, it's got to be like at the end of it, it's got to be like, let's go get some beers. It's got to be like, there's, <laughs> there's, there's nothing left. Any right. anger, it's all gone. It's all gone. Yeah, there's a, he has some really great chemistry with pretty much everybody in the movie, like Claude Aikens and... Uh, yeah. Like we mentioned, Larry Linville is very little there, but there, you know, he's kind of on his side. Yeah, he is. Which yeah. is a, again, it's the first time I think I've ever taken Ferret Face seriously <laughs> about anything. Even on that episode of Super Train, where Dick Van Dyke played a hitman and he had to save his wife. I haven't watched nearly as much Super Train as I should. Have. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good stuff. And I guess this was before Mash, so I don't this think this is seventy-two, yes, right? Or seventy-three? Yes, 70, so, seventy-two. Yeah, yeah. This is our right. Mm. Give me a second. Let me no, just, it, I think Mash was seventy three to eighty one. No, it was longer than that. Mash might Mash might I have think, already been on. I th- I think Mash started in September of seventy two, so this could have been made right right around okay. the time when Mash was. But starting. he wasn't famous yet. I don't think. No, no, he was not. He was no Claude Aikens. No, Claude Aikens was already on I Love Lucy oh, as well, Claude Cla- Aikens. That's how famous he was. <laughs> Well, Cla- Claude Aikens, like, uh, what is it, um, two years after this, three years after this, he'd be uh, great with Frank Converse and Moving On, one of my favorite TV shows. Oh, that's shows. right. The, tr- the Trucker Route 66. Yes. I love that show. Yes, and Sheriff Lobo, of course, which I know you love because of its I E.J. and the Bear Sheriff. connection. Yeah. yeah, he was great. And he was also in the first season of Murder, She Wrote. Oh, yeah. He got replaced. I think he, uh, him and, um, oh, my God, Jessica Fletcher, why can't, Angela Lansbury didn't get along, I think. What? Which is weird to me. I think there was some story that she 
for some reason did not like Claudia Kinzer. They butted heads, and she wanted the actor who came in, whose name I can't remember, even though I love him, that played Seth. Okay. Um, mm. To uh, to come in, she I think she was friendly with him and wanted him in instead. But she had sexual chemistry with Seth, so. All right. I'm just saying she didn't have. Oh, but also Claudia Kinzer was in the um, last season of Laredo because um, oh, Neville wow. Brand was, you know, a hardcore alcoholic, and they were having a lot of problems mm-hmm. with him showing up on the set. So they, I think they, they didn't let him go because I think he's in a few episodes, but they basically replaced him for a while with Claude Akins. Wow. Yeah. So he's been around. Oh, definitely, definitely, Claude. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, and Nate, I, I cut you off there. Did you have, did you have more on it? I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, mainly, it was just praise for the film. I was glad I watched it. Oh, good. I'm glad I've never seen it. Well, you're not a big vampire person, so what did you think of all the vampire activities? Like, why do you think it worked this time? I don't know. I think because it was less the traditional vampire. Right. And, you know, I mean, I thought they'd made the vampire scary in this one. In a lot of movies, the vampire is more kind of like a romantic or something. And that, to me, is just, you know, I'm not scary. So It's poppycock. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Balder Dash. It's Balder Dash. Yeah, you don't go for that. Well, what, do you like the Lost Boys? I do. I, I like the Lost Boys. Uh, it's not one of my favorite films. <gasps> I probably don't love it as much as you do. I, I might have to hang up on you. I know. <laughs> but here's the thing: I've always preferred um, Near Dark to the Lost Boys. Oh, well, that's a very popular film. Yeah. Oh. Was that was that a was that a dig? No, no, no. It is. It's like one of the oh, most okay. popular vampire movies I can think of, especially in contemporary vampire movies. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I know it's really popular and I respect it mm-hmm. for what it is. But yeah, and I know Lost Boys is very superficial in comparison. I know it's really just about cute guys walking around on the beach. And I'm I don't mind that. I don't mind it at all. <laughs> and I think that's you know, and I saw it just at the right age where like I was meant to stop Kiefer Sutherland for the next ten years. <laughs> you know, and so we met just at the right time, so I could so I could get that restraining order. When did you see that? About nine years ago. <laughs> I'm still stalking him. That's <laughs> I am. It is it is interesting. So they did a lot of different things with it. Um, I think the setting is really interesting because Vegas is a city that never sleeps, but it's always bright. Mm-hmm. So to put you know a vampire that can't be around any kind of real light, but I guess artificial light doesn't count. But I think it's an interesting twist. To the character, because you never think about that. You know what I mean. And there is just just from the um, that opening sequence with the uh, woman with the strange leather shorts on or whatever she's got on, where she's storming through the the crowds and the sidewalks. Everything's big and bright, and then yeah. she takes a shortcut down an alley, and she does not make it out of the alley. I'll be honest, I don't remember a lot of alleys in Vegas. I mean, I I know they must exist, but the casinos, I guess they're downtown, and I don't know the downtown area that well, but there's really no alleys on the Strip. And I guess, but in 72 or 73, the Strip would have been like three casinos. I mean, it didn't really grow till I had been there for a while. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't, th- I don't know that there were alleys. I think they might have fudged that. Could it have been a, could it have been a back lot? Backlot Alley. Possibly. <laughs> well, you know what? They actually did film part of it uh, at a film studio. You know, you know how you can tell. It, one of the uh, there, there's the um, it's right. It's the pool scene because they they cut from um, uh, Kolchak driving through the streets of Vegas, and uh, you know uh, we we've and isn't it something like we've spotted the suspect in a green station wagon? Wow, see, they have really updated it. The vampire driving around in a green station <laughs> wagon, but which actually looked blue to me. 
during the scene. You know, Sue Ellen but, on Dallas had a station wagon too. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> It, I like the Night Stalker so much because of uh, Darren McGavin. Sure. Uh, I think he's fantastic. Uh, I could watch him uh, all day. He's he's the perfect sort of great put upon hero who is kind of always right at the end, which which I like, even though they treat him like junk in the end. And I I don't um I don't particularly like that scene or those closing scenes. Uh, I like the fact that the movie is actually scary. It's legitimately got scares yeah. in it. Uh, I like the fact that the action scenes are exciting. I like the transplanting of the vampire to modern day, specifically somewhere sh- shiny, glossy, flashy like Vegas, which I think is a sort of um, audacious kind of idea that I like. You know, it's no longer in Europe. It's no longer the 19th century. It's not even like a um, small suburban town or anything right. like that. It's the bright lights and everything. And a real um, crowded, 24 hours kind of crowded too. Yes, exactly. And the, I mean, the only other uh, film I could think of like this from Vegas uh, was a couple of years before uh, mummy and the curse of the jackal, which has a scene with a mummy going down the, you know, the Las Vegas strip there. <sighs> People kind of looking at that. it funny. It's, it's, it's worth a viewing. It's a- Anthony, Isley, I think is his name, and um, and uh, who was in um, 77 Sunset Strip. Oh, no, okay. wait. Uh, was he in that one? He's in one of those shows. Oh, no, Hawaiian Eye. He oh, was okay. in Hawaiian Eye. And he's also in um, Dracula versus Frankenstein, the Al Adamson film. So he had and, a lot uh, of monsters going on there. Yes. And uh, I, I just think, I think it's a well-written film. I think there are a lot of great actors in it. I think there's a lot of great dialogue. I like the structure of it. I think it works. It works. It works really, really well. I think it's. Um, it still works today. I mean, yeah. I could watch it. Uh, I could watch it once every couple of months. Well, it's so. it's definitely a classic, and yeah. it was at the time of its airing. I think the seventh highest rated TV movie of all time, or maybe no, sorry, was the highest rated, and I think mm. it still lingers somewhere in the top twenty. Wow. And I've got the ratings numbers here when we do trivia. Okay. And it's interesting because I haven't really done the research around that film, but I'd be curious to see what the other top-rated movies were in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could probably name them sort of like Brian's Song. Brian's Song, yeah. Right? I don't know what else. That's the first one that came to mind. But it, I don't know why this movie became so popular. You know what I mean? Like, is it the yeah. first really? Because it's really early on and when they started doing horror. Because in the 60s, they, I mean, there was a horror on TV, but like TV movies didn't really dive into horror until uh, like six or seven years after the TV movie sort of came, the movie of the week sort of got created in 1964. And there's a, there's a handful of them from that era. The one I'm thinking of, well, there's Fear No Evil with uh, oh, yes. Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan. Yeah, and the yeah. sequel. And then there's one called Daughter of the Mind with Ray Milland and Don Murray. That's amazing. But th- what's interesting about that movie is I think it's one of the first, if not the first, horror TV movie. But mm. they mix it up with genres. It's actually half horror, half espionage. Okay. And I think they did that because they weren't sure that audiences were going to accept a full-blown horror movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, and so it wasn't really till the ABC movie of the week came around that they started sort of redefining. I don't know if they were redefining it, but they were taking a chance with genres and seeing what stuck. Mm-hmm. And Night Stalker may have set the tone for the types of films that ABC wanted to pick up afterwards. Yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. Yeah, yeah. so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I think they took a little bit of a chance with it. Now, Richard Matheson did say that the ABC did promote it really well. I think they were all really happy with the push that ABC gave it and, and that they were fully behind them from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that's good, too. So they they were, um, I don't know, 
was uh, Dark Shadows an ABC show? I believe so. That sounds right. So they might have had some kind of already good relationship with Dan Curtis, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So anyway, it's a, it's just a really interesting film because it does mix horror and humor, which I don't think didn't exist beforehand, but they definitely like took it in places that felt unexpected and yeah. felt new then to me. And yet they kept it really scary. And I think, you know, when you look at John Llewellyn Moxie's career, he has done things that have been more lighthearted, but they I don't think they work nearly as well as they did in The Night Stalker. Mm. You know, like I don't know if you've ever seen, is it called Panic in Echo Park? No, no, I have not. Um, where it's kind of like, it's about like a disease spreading through Echo Park, but mm. it's got this real kind of high life, funny feel behind it. It's very odd. It's one of the few John Llewellyn Mox movies I'm a little mixed about. And I think he did Ebony, Ivory, and Jade, which also sort of makes his humor, oh, sure. you know, with like action. And it's uncomfortable in that mix, too. But when he did straight horror, he was really good. And so this is probably the best he ever did at combining the two. Mm-hmm. And maybe the best he did at doing horror. I mean, it's obviously his most popular film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. Yeah, it's a good one. Do you have anything else to say? Should I go to the trivia or do you want to... I, th- I think you hit the trivia. I think... Okay. Uh, I think. Uh, well, I talked about a little bit of it already, but I, there might be some talking points in here that are interesting. So uh, I will tell you it ran against... Oh, so you said it ran on January 11th, 1972 on ABC. It ran against a new special called Suffer Little Children, which is about children in Belfast. I think there was some problem with children there. And that sounds really entertaining, doesn't it? <laughs> the hoot. Yeah. And then on CBS, <laughs> they ran Hawaii 5 and Cannon. And this was originally titled The Kolchak Tapes, which I guess uh, when we get to the Norlis tapes, I guess we could say the original title was an homage of sorts, Mm. I think. Um, The budget was $450,000, which actually seems like a lot for a TV movie in 1972, but still a pretty low budget. Its rating was 33.2 with a 54 share, which means that it was uh, approximately there were approximately 51 million viewers. And it was the highest rated TVM at the time. And like I said earlier, it still lingers somewhere in the top 20 of all. Oh, there's like thousands of TV movies that have been made. Yeah. And this is still in the top 20 and it's over 40 years old. I mean, that's how much of an impact it's had on audiences. It was shot on location in Las Vegas and at the Sam Goldwyn Studios. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Jeff Rice because he. OK, so in the movie, in the movie, they work for the Las Vegas Sun, which is a real newspaper and it still exists. And, you know, it's kind of ironic when you think about it. I don't know if the Las Vegas sun was meant to be a joke because the vampire can't be in the sun. Hey. Yeah, that just occurred to me. Jeff Rice was an award-winning journalist who worked un- under a tough editor who fired him over a dozen times in two years. So he was <laughs> so Vincenzo was actually based off um, the, his real-life editor. Uh, he finished his manuscript on the night of Halloween. Uh, it was originally called The Kolchak Papers. He would write, and what's really interesting is, so he wrote the story that the movie was based on, but then Richard Matheson wrote the sequel, which was The Night Strangler, and then Jeff Rice actually wrote the novelization of that script. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting, mm. like, reverse yeah. Rice was essentially blacklisted from Hollywood after threatening to sue the studios for not securing rights to Kolchak with him. In the settlement, he was given rights to the character and later licensed Kolchak to comic books and novels, which is why he's still around. I don't know if you mm-hmm. noticed that there's still books that are being published uh, as Kolchak. Yeah. Um, and actually, so the, I don't know. You must have it, Dan. The Col- is it called the Night Stalker Companion? The, you know what? I don't have it. I, I, I would I would love to get a copy. Yeah, you I've know got a what, birthday we, coming. Yeah, I'll think of it. We have it somewhere, but we we have most of our stuff in boxes right now because our apartment's so small. But we mm-hmm. actually have it. The guy who wrote that, his name is Mark 
I'm going to mispronounce his name, Dawidziak, D-A-W-I-D-Z-I-A-K. So if you want to read a little bit about Jeff Rice, you can go on cleveland.com and look up Mark's article. He wrote a tribute to him when Jeff Rice died a couple years ago. So Jeff Rice died in relative obscurity, even though he created Kolchak. Um, because he got blacklisted, he sort of ended up just struggling for the rest of his life to kind of find his niche or, or to do what I think he loved doing Kolchak and doing that kind of writing. And it was really hard for him to sort of get back into that. But he was able to secure the rights to Kolchak, and that's really nice. And apparently, if you read the comments of this article, uh, there's a couple comments where people actually would write to Jeff Rice, and apparently he treated everybody like they were his best friend. And he was uh -huh. really approachable, a really nice guy. He loved talking about Kolchak. It was a big thing mm -hmm. for him. You know, he's very proud of it. And um, and apparently he was really open to all the fandom that came his way, but there wasn't a lot of fandom because all the credit went to McGavin, Matheson, and Curtis. Oh, yeah. You know, so uh, I just think he's worth mentioning because um, I, I think his death was sort of tragic in that I only heard, I heard that he died like two months after he actually died. That's oh, how wow. much That's how much press he got. Uh-huh. You know, and I think that's unfortunate because he did create the character. So Matheson also said that he did very little to the story. So he said basically what Jeff Rice gave him in the manuscript was basically what he put into the script. Mm -hmm. So um, you can credit Rice for that, too. Uh, Matheson said, uh, so um, I have a book called Dan Curtis's, oh, shit, of course I can't remember the name of it now. <laughs> Dan Curtis Television Terrors or something like that. It's an amazing book, and that's where I do a lot of my research. And there's a lot of interviews with Matheson and Curtis in there. And there's a, obviously there's an entire chapter dedicated to Kolchak. But um, Matheson said that he actually felt more satisfaction creatively with his made-for-television movie script. So he actually preferred working in television. Oh, wow. Yeah, which wow. I thought was so cool. Also, something that we should point out is that, um, you know, when I played the opening tape of Kolchak, mm -hmm. and he says it couldn't happen here, that's how the movie ends as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he uses that line at the beginning. That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. So I made a note of that. That never occurred to me before. That's, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. I like that sort of. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how how we would unpack that. I can't think of another mm -hmm. word for that. But it's something to think about. So mm -hmm. For another episode. Um, yes. <laughs> Matheson also won a Writer's Guild Award for the adaptation. And um, McGavin insisted the character be Polish-American, which might be why you like him so much, Dan. Yay! And since you're a Polish-American guy, who have used things? Yeah, that's right. I am, I am. Apparently, he was Romanian-American in the original story. Huh. And also, I don't know if you know this, but he was originally supposed to wear Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirts because that's how Jeff Rice envisioned him, even though he was a reporter for The Sun. And uh, Darren McGavin was like, nobody dresses like that. And so <laughs> when they were figuring out the character, they said, you know, you just got kicked out of New York. And he's like, oh, this is what reporters would wear in the summer in New York. And I'm, I haven't bothered to buy another suit. Ah. And that's how you get that the hat and the whole mm -hmm. look that he has. So that was actually McGavin's idea. McGavin felt that he, he actors tend to play themselves in television because of the fast-paced nature of the medium. And he said, well, when you're working that fast in television, you have to draw on yourself. You use who you are to a greater extent than you would in a play or a film. Um, also, McGavin's wife, whose name I didn't write down, but I think it's Kathy Brown, she confirmed that Kolchak was very close to her husband in that he was a fighter which we'll mm. kind of get into when I go through some more of the trivia. If anybody here uh, wants to check out the, I think it's called this Collingsport Port Historical Society, which Collingsport, I think, is the Dark Shadows. It is, yes. Yeah, CollingsportHistorySociety.com. There's a transcript of an interview with Barry Atwater, who played Scorzani, from a 1975 issue of Castle Frankenstein. On Scorzani, Atwater commented, I felt he was very lonely. He had no friends. He's all alone, so he doesn't talk to people. 
I'm sure he's not a happy man, but he's stuck. Which I thought was really interesting. Because we never think yeah. of Scorzeni, I think, in terms of humanness. Mm-hmm. You know? But when I read that, I actually think, you know what? I bet he was like a really lonely guy. Yeah. You know? And it's kind of interesting to think of him as uh, in more terms of tragedy. Cause, yeah, because he's not a suave vampire he's like certainly not so many suave. others. Yeah. And it's not like he's going to just walk down the street and meet a chick. Mm-hmm. No. 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 He's a or little, Scorzeni. He's yeah. a little scary. Um, mm-hmm. He appreciated that Scorzeni didn't have dialogue because he felt that that would make him seem more human, which is interesting because now I'm applying all these human characteristics to him. Um, <laughs> Atwater intimated that the police corruption was relatable to audiences because at the time there was Watergate and such political uh, turmoil such as that, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. And you kind of touched on the corruption because they destroy Kolchak essentially, or they think they do. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, Matheson made a point to highlight police corruption and government corruption in his screenplay. Like it's not overwhelming, but it's obviously there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I think it's interesting to relate it to the early seventies. Atwater was actually the head of UCLA's sound department before he became an actor. Wow. Yeah. The original producer of the night stalker ever chambers actually left the production to work on Columbo. And that's how they got Dan Curtis. Mm. So they originally had a different producer. This was the first time Curtis and Matheson worked together. The role of Scorzani was originally meant for Robert Corey, you know, Count Yorga. Sure. But they couldn't do it because of his contract with AIP. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moxie was the one who said ABC promoted the film well. He was really happy with the promotion. The New York Times did not get a preview screening, but wrote their synopsis as newsmen fight censorship from his editor and the police trying to prove that Las Vegas is being terrorized by a vampire. And I only point that out because um, I think it was Matheson, but it might have been Curtis, who pointed out that they thought even though they hadn't, seeing the movie that they pointed out exactly all of the highlights of the film. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they, they really like thought it was dead on Robert Corbett who did the soundtrack. And I think he did all of Dan Curtis's movies mm-hmm. and television. He called his score detective jazz, mm. which is, I think I might've called that at the beginning. The subsequent series had a lot of problems with McGavin feeling burnt by the studios after he was originally offered 50% of the series, which didn't ultimately pan out. Also, Curtis was not interested, and because of that, Matheson was also not interested in doing a weekly series, commenting that coming up with a monster a week seemed to be difficult, if not impossible. Although McGavin didn't agree so much with that, uh, he didn't think it was a bad idea. He thought the the series went into the hands of bad people. Mm-hmm. And apparently he lost interest in it um, pretty early on. I don't know. Can you can you notice that when you're watching it, Dan? Uh, no, no. He he plays it pretty, pretty well throughout. But you can notice that um, the same kind of kind of tropes and things are happening again and again in the episodes and it doesn't seem to be um and they're all in Chicago apart from two of them I think and you could sort of, if you it's it's sort of if if you watch like one a week uh-huh. they're a lot of fun but if you watch them too many too close together it's the same thing it's kind of the same thing over cuz the, there is one where they go on a cruise ship oh and um uh the guy from uh Young and the Restless oh Victor Newman Yes, I was going to say Mr. Victor Newman. Yes, he. I was. I was trying to remember the actor's name, and I never remember his name. But he's he he is in the episode The Werewolf, which is on a cruise ship. Ooh, I have to see that. And then there was a sequel to Night Stalker, where uh, Kolchak returns to Vegas for something or other, and ends up one of the because they make a point uh, within the Night Stalker of saying that all the women who died were their bodies were cremated. And apparently one of them was not. Oh. And she is now a vampire. And when she discovers Kolchak is there and what he did to her, um, you know, 
her vampire master or whatever, she goes after Kolchak. Oh, that sounds so good. So yeah. those are the yeah. ones you'd recommend? Uh, I um, this, The episode The Zombie is excellent. And uh, yeah, the vampire one is very good. And the uh, I really love the one with the um, uh, the motorcyclist, the headless horseman motorcyclist, mm-hmm. written by Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. That's a lot of fun oh, too. Cool. I have the series, but I, you know, I only remember the Spanish Moss one, and I only remember the monster. Okay. And I know I saw it as a kid, but I don't remember seeing any of the other episodes. It's it's definitely worth if you enjoy the two movies. It's definitely worth yeah. viewing. But just not um, don't like don't pile it on because right. okay. it's going to be a bit much because he does have the same thing happen to him episode after episode. Which well, is you know, I think that's where uh, Chris Carter for the X-Files yes. thought, oh, we can't do that every week. And mm-hmm. I guess plus there were I think story arcs were coming in anyway, like those long term arcs that you didn't see so much in 70s and 80s TV. Yeah, I think he kind of realized you have to have other things happening. Because he he did he did have uh, in like the first season of X Files there's a lot of Mulder and Scully arriving at places and the authorities being like who are you jerks what are you yeah. talking about ghosts uh, <laughs> where but what are you talking that happens a lot in the first season but then fades as the show goes along which is yeah which is nice. well I mean even though I don't really care for the story arc so much I think it's kind of nice to break it up with like a Mulder story yeah and also Scully story which is way more compelling to me but. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think having like just a few episodes in there that where you get to learn the characters' motivations better, yeah, is really important. And I think Chris Carter figured that out. Yeah, and I th- I think they they j- just plain didn't do that in the mid seventies on shows like no Night no no Coach no no yeah. no. And yeah. I'm fine with that. I don't mind. I like mm-hmm. that I can drop into Charlie's Angels in any episode, and I don't yeah. really need to know what they're doing beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I appreciate yeah. that, but. Um, McGavin and his wife, whose name I did write down here, Kathy Brown, had a production company called Torian Films. Um, they actually uh, made a movie called Run, Stranger, Run with Ron Howard, and Darren McGavin directed oh, yeah. it. It's the only oh, thing yeah. Darren McGavin's ever directed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of title, like Happy Mother's Day, Love George, I think. I think so, yeah. That's anyway, that's um, yeah. that was their production company as well. In January mm-hmm. of 1974, ABC reran Night Stalker as a double feature with Curtis's Scream of the Wolf. Mm. Um, that's it for my trivia. I will say, though, I do own The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler on DVD and my copies autographed by Richard Matheson. What? Yeah, we got to meet him a couple times. Nice. So um, that's pretty exciting. I forgot he autographed that. I have some books he signed, but mm. I, I forgot that we actually had him sign some DVDs as well. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, and that's all my trivia. Awesome. Awesome, I think. I don't have anything. <laughs> I think that basically covers just about everything I could possibly think of. Yeah, that's, that was a fantastic amount of trivia. That was I, great. Know, I know you did some heavy research, Nate, and I'm sorry I took uh, your spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just meant to ask, like, is there, like, so, so Nate, you're, you've watched TV movies for a long time, but you obviously don't go as deep as I do in TV movies, and... Just out of curiosity, like when you hear stuff like this, does anything stand out to you like budgets or shooting schedules or like? I'm always curious about budgets. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what they do or did. I guess they still do it on Lifetime and stuff for like very little money. And in the 70s more so, I think they made more epic movies. I feel like uh-huh. like Lifetime movies are good, but it's basically like, look, my neighbor. Let's go to my neighbor's. She killed somebody. Let's go back to the house. <laughs> you know, you don't get as much like car chasing and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, they did a lot with very little, and I actually think this movie had a lot of money behind it. The four hundred fifty thousand dollars seems more than what I think I've read is the norm. 
I think the norm is actually around 250,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but he still, they did a lot with very little. Because I bet if we look up the French Connection, they're going to tell you that they spent like a, at least a couple million on it. Oh, definitely. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm not saying yeah. that this is the French Connection, but um, <laughs> but they do do things that you don't normally see in TV movies. The stunt people really give it their all yeah, in the Night do. Stalker. They and you go know, the extra. Uh, I have to think that when they did that scene where he's running outside the hospital, they had to have done that in one or two takes. I would bet you that was probably one take. I, I always wonder if there, there's a motorcycle that wipes out. And I always wonder if that every time I watch it, it, it doesn't look like he's supposed to wipe out. And then, then he sort of does. And the motorcycle kind of skids along the yeah. ground through the shot. And it's, is, it's always it's so cool. It's so amazing. It's so That's my favorite scene, I think, in the movie. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite scene, Dan? Actually, it might be that one also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, it's, just, that, that's, it's so exciting. Because they, they recreate it in the sort of in the Ripper the first of the hour-long episodes. Oh, uh, when you said the Ripper, I was thinking of the Tom Savini shot on. Oh, the Tom Savini. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and love I was like, it. you do of... that in the Ripper? Oh, man, I love the Ripper. <laughs> uh, but they, yeah, the, there's a scene where he's, um, the Ripper is like up on like a, the third story of a building and they're all shooting at him and then he leaps all the way down and kind of like pummels his way through everybody. It's, it's not as good as the Night Stalker scene, but they try. So give us some of uh, your uh, thoughts on... Um... The Night Strangler. I think, uh, I, I remember in the, in the first episode, one of my thoughts on The Night Strangler is that, and forgive me for repeating myself, but I think the version that's available is an extended version. Oh. I, I believe, because according to Merrill, The Night Strangler was in a 90-minute time slot. Right. Which means it should be the length of Night Stalker, about 74 minutes right. or so. Gotcha. But the but the version that's on DVD is ninety minutes, oh. which which is not the length of what a two hour movie would be. It would be more like ninety five to a hundred. Right. But it is the length of what the extended version of Duel is. So I'm wondering if like when they theatricaled a, a TV movie, they made it ninety minutes. Sure, that's because interesting. Because in in Night Strangler, they do the same thing with Vincenzo arguing because it's in set in Seattle. Right. And there, there's someone going around killing people uh he 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 and joanne uh flug or flug um have a bit of a romance i've always felt there was one too many scenes with him and vincenzo arguing like they they may have cut one or two of them out of the 74 minute version and then they're like we need to beef this up by 50 minutes throw in some more arguments (laughs) all right let's do it oakland's still in the office there let's do it i like the night strangler I don't think it's as as good as the Night Stalker because it's kind of um, sort of doing the same thing. The sort of villain is very different, and the ending is very different and more elaborate. I think if if you like Night Stalker, I think you really like Night Strangler. It just like I said, I think I think it just go maybe goes on a little too long in the cut it's in. It's got some good scares. It's got some good good creepy stuff. It's got some great ending sequences in the old Seattle, which is underneath Seattle, underground city, are really cool. Well, I need to see it again because I don't remember anything. And you know, I didn't watch it that. It was just in the last couple of years I watched it. Okay. But for uh, yeah, some reason, I, I can't recall anything. I mean, I, I sort of recall an autopsy scene. I believe so. There's a woman, uh-huh. I think, that died. And that's all I can remember. Yeah, it's it's definitely worth I won't give away what the the monster villain okay. is in it or anything. But it's a, it's definitely, if you like Stalker, you'll like Night Strangler. And you'll probably like most of the series, too. So Cool. Okay. Well, yeah. I think that's our Night Stalker. 
Woohoo! Yay! Well, that was a fun discussion. Yay, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add, Nate? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. Everything. What kind everything. of underwear was Darren McGavin wearing? We covered huh. that. Oh, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> he was wearing pajama bottoms. Oh, I'm keeping wow. the whole time. Because he's adorable that way. I feel like he'd have like boxers with like uh, like red or blue spots on them, like I circles him, or something. I picture like him in boxers too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. Okay, so we have yeah. covered everything now. There we go. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Okay. So, Nate, I don't know if you need to leave. Yeah, unfortunately. But okay. I am planning on watching the Norlis tapes before our next one. Oh, okay. So I can actually start doing these five minutes. Okay, that'll be great. I think Ma- you'll like it, too. I think you'll like it. I do, too. And I'll try to whip up maybe a little song or something right before you do your five minutes. Five minutes oh, with great. Nate or something like that. You know, my own little theme song. Yeah, we'll work on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, you know yeah. what you should you should uh, incorporate some of the music from House of Death. Oh, I'll do that. Dun, 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 dun. It's five minutes with Nate. I'll work on it. I'll well, work I do on know. It. I do know that Dan has been messing around with Audacity, which is a recording thing for your computer. Yes. So uh-huh. I think that's your first project. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we the challenge Nate you. The Nate thing. The challenge is <laughs> it mostly. It, it'll probably be accepted. I think I'll think about yeah, it. Yeah, I think you yeah, will. yeah. I, I I like the thought of maybe having a different song I sing every time. Maybe. We'll see um, about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Maybe oh, one boy. song. We're gonna have <laughs> I, we're gonna have a talk talk afterwards. I'm gonna let you go, Nate. Okay, but I will be back for the next one. Sounds great. All right, talk, talk to you soon. soon Nate. All right, see you. All right, so we're moving on to our next film, which is the Norlis tapes, which I'm really excited about. I love this movie. And there's no promo for it that I could find, so I'm just going to start with this clip. My original idea was to expose the phonies who are bilking millions of dollars each year out of their gullible victims. To go after the fake mediums, phony astrologers, the self-proclaimed seers, and trick mystics. I was successful at this for some time. The floating face, which was a dummy's head on a wire the ghost of a woman's son who turned out to be the medium's own kid in a weird getup. The fortune teller whose life images in a crystal ball were supplied by a hidden film projector. But then I got into this business with Ellen Court. I'd better try to get this down exactly the way it happened. Oh boy. The Norless Tapes, February 21st, 1973. Produced and directed by Dan Curtis. Teleplay by William F. Nolan. He's the gentleman who wrote the first two uh, portions of Trilogy of Terror, I believe. Yes. Is that correct? Um, Starring Mr. Roy Thinnes as Mm. David Norless. My husband. Oh boy. (laughs) Uh, Also with Angie Dickinson and... Again, Mr. Claude Aikens playing another sheriff. I did love him as the sheriff. Wow, he was good. And he's he's a very similar sort of sheriff, but but different also, which is part of the fun. Yeah. So the uh the basic story of this is uh Norlis is a a writer. Uh sort of is he is he like a journalist or is he more of a writer? I think or? he's more of like a nonfiction book writer. Okay. And he has a beautiful home in San Francisco oh. overlooking the bay, which How much means do you think that costs? I was going to say, which means he must be a successful writer 
because you don't yeah. get a house like that in San Francisco unless you've done very well. And you can compare and contrast where, you know, Norlis uh, is and where Kolchak is at right. the beginning of each of these movies. Um, but Norlis is having some trouble. Well, he, he calls his publisher. Hello, David. Been a while. How's the book coming? Sanford, I've got to talk to you. I know. You want to tell me that it's only half written and we're going to have to delay? Half written? Hell, I don't have a word on paper. It's been almost a year. I know how long it's been, Sanford. But I, uh... I can't write it. I'm afraid to write it. Not making sense. We gave you a sizable advance to write a book debunking the supernatural, which was your idea, not ours. Now you tell me, a year later, you haven't even started it. I'm into the book. Deep into it. But, uh... It's on... On tapes. A series of tapes. When you hear them, you'll understand. What will I understand? How far I've gone. dangerous this whole thing is. Sam and I have to talk to you. David, you sound very strange. Are you all right? David, are you all right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, uh, what about the Carnelian room uh, for lunch tomorrow? It's no good. I have to see you now. Monday, Dave, you know what Monday's all right. Why not tomorrow? Tomorrow might be too late. I just want to point out that that's Don Porter as the publisher, a.k.a. Gidget's dad. Yes, yes. And a little later, he has a conversation with uh, Robert Mandan. So, uh, I that's, know. That's, that's my favorite part. That's, that's a great I, time. He's like one of my favorite actors ever. And you know, know, it's interesting when you think about it. Well, Don Porter later on in the 70s did kind of serious characters. Like he was the bad guy a lot on like Bionic Woman and Six Million Dollar Man. And you could tell he loved it. They kind of used comedians here at the in the opening scenes, didn't they? Guy actors yeah. were more known for doing comedy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Sanford, the publisher, goes to visit. Uh, go well. He tries to go out to lunch with David Norlis, Mr. Norlis. Norlis doesn't show up. Then he has to chat with Robert Mandan, Norlis's lawyer. Um, no one knows where Norlis is. So Sanford eventually goes to the house. There's no one there. No sign of Norlis, but he has typed up something that's still in the typewriter. And I forget the exact wording in the typewriter, but it's something along the lines of, you know, like, this is a terrible story that I have to tell or something like that. And then it all began dot, dot, dot. I, I like his use of the ellipses in yeah. <laughs> sort, sort of like a, because he, he doesn't type anymore. That's it. So uh, Sanford wanders over to the cassettes that Norlis has made. And he begins listening to the cassettes that tell the story of the movie. And the movie involves uh, Angie Dickinson as Ellen Court, mm -hmm. a woman whose husband has just died. He's a sculptor. They live in a beautiful estate in Carmel. Right off the bat, uh, she hears some noise in her husband's studio, which is like a converted barn or a converted uh, house of some variety within the estate. Her and the dog go to the house, and there is an enormous, blue-faced, strange-eyed, screaming man who kills the dog and gets shot but survives. And that's, uh, he was, a, that guy's a little scary, this yeah. blue-faced guy. Yeah, she shot him dead in the center of his body. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, she's a good shot. Yeah. And he 
survives it. He survives it, and um, I'm just she, saying it's super scary. Yeah, it's a gr- it's a great it's a great shot cut to this this blue faced screamy guy standing there getting just being, and he takes out the dog and kind of a yeah, that's actually really intense. Matter, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, Norlis is called in um, by I believe it's Ellen's sister calls Norlis into uh, chat with Ellen about um, what she saw. And Ellen believes, I believe Ellen, Ellen thinks right off the bat that that, that was her husband, yes. correct? Yes. Uh, yes. So that was her husband. He's blue. It's crazy. And she begins to tell Norlis the story of her husband that he got like, um, like a sort of a degenerative brain disease. Mm-hmm. And he gradually began to deteriorate. And as his life uh, came near, near the end, he became involved in the supernatural and he became as involved with. Yes, he became the vault of what the woman name is it J- Jekyll? Jekyll? Oh yeah, Madame Jekyll. Madame Jekyll uh, has awesome hair. Has awesome hair, and who uh, gives him a ring, the ring of Osiris? Yes, it's a scarab, yeah. right? It's scar- Yeah, and he he wears it on his finger, and he actually has it in the family crypt, in the um, yes. in the coffin. He has the, he has the ring on, uh, which is something to do with uh, sort of immortality and resurrection. And the fact that he seems to be running around as a big blue face zombie means the the blue ring might be working. I wonder if the blue ring gave him the blue face. Ooh, I guess probably not. That's a not. good question. I will point out though that um, Norlis's apartment has like these giant beetle paintings. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. I made the connection when I watched it uh, last time, and I was like, oh, that, I wonder if that mean it doesn't mean anything, but uh-huh. it's interesting um, juxtaposition. Yeah. Of like the scarab with the debunker having those paintings that yeah. are like scarab like. He's uh, so, so Norlis at this point he goes uh, he goes to visit the sheriff played by uh, by Claude Akins the to great just Claude Akins to to get to sort of um, uh, find out any information he can. Uh, Mr. Norlis, at uh, at the risk of seeming inhospitable, I just don't understand why any of this would interest a man who spends his time. Uh, well, <laughs> chasing ghosts. I'm sure you find this all very amusing, Sheriff. Mrs. Court swears her husband is alive. She asked me to help her, I agreed to. What do you want from me? Any information that ties in with the man she shot in her husband's studio? Uh, shot at. I was plain she missed him. Nobody can take a shotgun charge and keep walking. Look, she saw an intruder, she went panicky. Could have been anybody. Some bum looking to spend the night indoors it gets cold out here in these woods at night now i'll bet you that right now your uh, ghost has hopped a freight and is halfway to chicago as for information i i don't have any to give what about that uh, girl who was murdered in her car the other night tonight millie parks well, what about her I really like that scene because there's a lot of buildup. So that scene is very long and I cut half of it out. But, <laughs> there, you know, that part is just a very casual conversation yeah. about what's happening with uh, Mrs. Court. But then he merges it into this other information that obviously gets uh, Claudiekins riled up a bit. Mm-hmm. And then it gets pretty intense. Yeah. And there's a lot of gun racks in this movie. I don't know. If there you is, know. yeah, there yeah. really is, yeah. And at one point, Norlis sort of wanders over to the sheriff's gun rack and like 
grabs one of the not grabs but like touches one of the guns and i thought mr norlis i don't think you want to do that you don't want to wander into a sheriff's <laughs> office and start playing with his rifles but That's i mean just... like it's just a very nonchalant like well, what about this woman and then, yeah and then he's and he's touching the gun rack he's just sort of like very casual about his questioning mm-hmm. but it's so obvious that he's already yeah. made the connection you know what i mean and, mm-hmm. and claudia Kins also knows it yeah, and the, he they they mention the woman who was strangled in her car, and there's there's a scene yeah where a woman is she goes in her car first she gets scared by a cat, and then she's right. driving in her car and Mr. Blueface is in the back seat. Oh, that's so scary! And he grabs her and and the car goes careening through the woods, smashes into a tree, and when they find her body later, she has been strangled and all her blood has been drained. Yeah, and they do it really well. So like this truck driver finds her body, mm-hmm. and. All you see is the look on his face. Yeah. And in my memory, because I've seen this movie a few times now, in my memory, they show the body and just the face or whatever, but they don't. They never show it. But that's how good his, like how well his expression works. So you think you see more than you see. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really well done. Yeah, it's a. There's there some lovely. Dan, I I don't think Dan Curtis's um, sort of action uh, bits and scares are quite as good as Moxie's, but I think he does a good job. I think this that. movie is more about atmosphere. Yeah. Although there's some yeah. good scares, but it's mm-hmm. the movie itself is really it's very gothic feeling. I mean, it's very much in a way like a modern Dark Shadows in the tone. Yeah, and it it, it doesn't um, unlike Night Stalker, which piece by piece kind of reveals what's going on. This one right off the bat, you see the big blue faced guy like in the first 10 minutes and right. she says, yeah, that's my husband. So it's like, what's he doing here? Yeah. How'd he get here? What's yeah. going on? Why is he taking the blood? Yeah. He's not the mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. how he got that way is. Yeah. And he, uh, there, the, the, the movie is just a series of scenes with sort of Norlis. Like he interviews a guy at an art gallery who really wanted to buy the ring. He, uh, he talks with, uh, um, Angie Dickinson's, uh, sister. Well, not Angie Dickinson's sister, but Ellen Court's sister who has kind of a little high voice. She's a lovely she lady. Does. She's beautiful. She's, she's got a voice. It's kind of a little up like this. Yeah. I have a feeling Michelle Carey played, um, ditzes a little bit in her career. I don't know that cause I don't really recognize her, but, um, uh-huh. she's, she's definitely beautiful. Well, she gets, she gets probably my favorite scene in the movie when she oh. goes to a motel in the middle of the yes. night. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, that's probably my favorite. Well, what happens afterwards is my favorite scene. But you're talking about that couple, aren't you? I love that couple. Oh, please let me come in. It's freezing. Please, I need a room. Papa, will you tell her we're closed? Papa, tell her we're closed. Now look, lady, it's like I said. Oh, please, can I come in? It's so wet out here. I'm freezing to death. Well, come on in. It's awfully late, but I could give you cabin number nine. It's our best one. New springs and mattress in there. Just a shower, no tub bath. Is that all right? And that's fine. That's fine, really. I said we're closed. Can't turn the girl away, Mama. No harm in giving her nine. Well, give her the key and hurry up about it and come to bed, Papa. Now. (laughs) Mama. She gets a little grouchy after midnight. I can handle her, though. Well, I hope so. I I don't want to cause you any trouble. Oh, no trouble at all. So just so you know, I have a friend who calls me Mama. (laughs) And I call him Papa. (laughs) I wish Mama and Papa had their own movie. 
I wish they did too. They do somewhere in a a parallel universe. Yes. Oh, that's best. So um, eventually the uh, Norlis goes and speaks with uh, Ms. uh, Jaquiel, the the, uh, supernatural lady. And uh, we begin to learn what exactly uh, the the blue demon guy, Mr. Court, is doing because something is being sculpted in that old sculpting place. It's apparently being sculpted by the big blue demon guy. And the big reveal at the end is sort of what is being sculpted, why is it being sculpted, what's happening with all the blood, and will Norlis and Ellen Court make it out alive? <laughs> I don't know. Ah! Uh, scary. You know, so that scene where they go to the house, I, guess, I think she's already at the inn and they go back to visit the house and he's there, her husband, and he's yes. chasing them around the estate. And oh, yes. He, he rips off the car door because yes. their car can't get started fast enough, right? And he mm-hmm. just comes up and he's so strong that he just rips off the car door. And there's this look on Angie Dickinson's face, you know, because she's just watching. <laughs> he's trying to start the car. You know, Norlis is like coming into the car for the most part. And she's just watching this guy come up to the car and rip off the door. And every time I watch that scene, it freaks me out. Mm. Yeah, it's a great scene. That's my favorite scene, I think, in the movie. Okay. And there is um, one of my favorite sort of strange character actors plays the Claude Aiken's character's deputy. You only see him in a couple scenes. He's a big, beefy guy with a mustache. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's best known. Uh, I I wish I I forgot to look up his name, yeah, but he's be, he's best known as the trucker with the ascot in Graduation Day. Oh, is that him? Yeah, at the beginning of Graduation oh, Day. Also, you know what? George DiCenzo is the guy mm-hmm. that works at the gallery that gets the guy who owns the gallery to talk to Norlis, and uh-huh. he's a famous character actor. And I was really surprised to see he's only in that scene. Yeah. Because I'm used to him starring in stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think just a couple years later, he starred in, um, is it called Million Dollar Ripoff? It was Freddie Prinze's only oh, yeah. TV movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, he plays, I think, the cop in it. I think that's George DiCenzo. Um, but anyway, he's been in a lot of stuff. And I was like, oh, there he is. Oh, wait. That's it? Yeah. That was kind of yeah, interesting. It yeah, it's... Um, now, you know, what, do you, what do you think of the Norlis character? Okay, so the Norlis character is very divisive with people, um, and I kind of get it. But, you know, I like David Norlis. My husband did not, so he had never seen the Norlis tapes before, and we watched it this weekend. And he really liked it. He thought it was really good, but he understood why Kolchak was more popular because mm-hmm. Kolchak's a much more likable character. Yeah. Norlis is very aloof. That doesn't really bother me because I think it fits the character, and I, and I love Roy Thinnis. So Roy Thinnis has been in a million things. The Invaders is probably the thing he's most famous for. And then he went on the X-Files because of that. He's in a couple episodes. But he um, he played uh, Sloane Carpenter on One Life to Live. He actually played two characters on One Life to Live, but I only remember Sloane. Sloane stole Vicky away from Clint, and it was a big deal. And they caused a divorce, and everybody hated Sloane. I love Sloane. I got it. I got it. <laughs> but um, And I've met Roy Thinnis, and he's actually oh. very affable. I have a picture mm-hmm. of me with him somewhere. And um, he's very sweet. He was a really nice guy. I'd heard he was really aloof. So I actually, years ago, and I don't know what happened to the tape, but if I ever come across it, I'll digitize it and put it online. I interviewed William F. Nolan years ago about this movie. And um, we had lunch at a diner. And he I'd never really done any interviews before. This was one of the first interviews I ever did. And I'm not even sure I got him to do it. And he was very kind. And he said, you know what, just let me talk. Because it was obvious that, like, I was really nervous. And he just told me as many stories as he could. And he told me that Roy Thinnis was not, not, 
how do I want to word it? He wasn't not a nice person. He was nice and he was Mm -hmm. fine to work with, but he wasn't as interested with like socializing with the cast and crew as say Angie Dickinson. She, he said Angie Dickinson was a blast. Mm -hmm. Like just, she was just so much fun to hang out with and she was great. And I think she really liked being around people. Roy Thinnis was like, I'm clocking in. Yeah. yeah, Tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. Um, Let's have lunch. And I'm going to go back to work and I'm going to leave. And um, and he said that there was nothing wrong with that, but that he was a very aloof person. And I feel like that translates really well, mm-hmm. um, his personality, too. And that might go back to what Darren McGavin said, where you sometimes yes. think you have to I, play yourself. I was just thinking that, yeah. So, so like, that's Claude Aikens? Is that in him, He that character he plays? <laughs> you know what? That would be interesting. I didn't ask William F. Nolan about Claude Aikens, but that would have been a good question. I think uh, Claude Aikens is really good at being an authority figure because, number one, he's hulking. He looks like a big, yeah. very uh, authoritative figure. But also, I think even when he plays these kind of hard asses, there's something um, attractive and good about him that mm-hmm. I see. Like He has a very gentle demeanor. Even yeah. even when he's like covering shit up, you know what I mean? There's something yeah. likable about him. And I think it comes through. And I think that makes him a compelling authority figure that's hiding something. Because I feel like in both cases, although less so in The Night Stalker, he's kind of stuck in the bureaucracy. Yeah. And I feel like in this movie in particular, he kind of doesn't want to be stuck in it. But he doesn't necessarily know any way out of it. Yeah, there's... there's... I mean the yeah, there's a a, a dead blue faced dead man is is killing people and draining their blood. What do you you know you how are you gonna fill out the report on that? One? <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't. And yeah. I and I feel like in both cases he's trying to keep the calm. Mm-hmm. But, you know he doesn't want to have mass hysteria running through the hills of Carmel. You know because mm-hmm. God knows what that would be like. But uh, <laughs> it would be very glamorous, I would imagine. But um, but he so William F. Nolan did tell me that Roy Thinnis was um was a pretty nice guy, but not, just not interested in like being anybody's buddy. Sure. And, and I feel like that's how Norlis is. He's yeah. you know I he I think he's not he's compassionate, but he's compassionate. The end. He's so much like Kolchak, but like the not funny version. Because you know how I said Kolchak, the byline was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I think the end game for Norlis is to debunk something. Yeah. And, I don't think he's he's not compassionate towards this woman who lost her husband and all this shit has happened. But the end game is proving that she's being conned. Yeah. Right? And that's I think he's more interested in that in the end. And in the in the end of, of Norless, he, he Norless tapes, he's much more um sort of affected by it than Kolchak oh, was. Yeah. Like, yeah. like Kol Kolchak once Kolchak gets it down on tape, it's like it's done. And then he goes to Seattle and fights a immortal man living underground. Well, Paul so. is open to the supernatural, too. He is. I, yeah, I, I, that, that's that is the 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 two things I prefer Kolchak to to Norlis is that he is funny and two he's got this sort of gradual like it's it's like this there's a crazy man out there he thinks he's a vampire he is a vampire and with each step right he 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 ascends to where he needs to be in order to defeat well to put it in x-file terms he's the molder and norlis is the scully yeah i would go for that you know um although i think scully had a better sense of humor than norlis did but yeah uh, you know norlis doesn't (laughs) he's not there to joke at all no he is not there for the laughs but uh but i really like him um i know that some people that's the linchpin they're like well if norlis had been like he's not charismatic but he's compelling i think i think he almost like the the movie um 
a lot of Night Stalker rests on Kolchak, whereas I don't think a lot of Norless tapes rests on Norless. He's just sort of, the, he's there to go from scene to scene and get stuff done, but you could you could almost put someone else there and it would still work. Whereas if you took Kolchak out of yeah. the Night Stalker and put someone else there, if you put Kojak there, it would be a different movie. <laughs> I would like to see that, though, just so you know. <laughs> But I think I think if it had so the Norlis taste was a pilot that never got picked up, mm-hmm. and I think that had it gone to series, I think he would have become a more interesting character because the point yeah. is, is that he is really affected by this. It's changed his whole thought process, so much like Scully, you know. And I think that there would have been a lot of growth, and maybe that was their intention mm-hmm. to start him off as kind of like a black and white sort of guy, and then as the series would progress, you would start to see the grays. Yeah, You know, and he would recognize him more. I think that that could have been a real strong potential with him as compared to Darren McGavin's Kolchak, where I think he's already where Norlis needs to get. Yeah. You know, yeah. so the development, they'd have to develop him the other way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that would be as much fun. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, cause I, I was, I was just thinking of how, of you got Kolchak, you got Norlis, and then you got the guy in the mud monster. Oh yeah, yeah, Grandpa Landis, and he's sort of the happy yeah. medium, I think. Yeah, he he kind of is because he 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 cracks wise, you know, when the golems out outdoors every once in a while. But, um, but he's well, he's in there with Joe Beth Williams, so well, he's making time with Joe Beth. I mean, who That's does true. that? There's like a monster <laughs> with no soul screaming like a baby outside your cabin, and you're hitting on the woman you're stuck in the cabin with. Who does? I mean, it was 1978. Maybe they had a key party afterwards with Bernard Hughes. <laughs> I'm not sure if that was appropriate for that moment. <laughs> I, can I – something I, I love because uh, I have Norless tapes playing on my left right now. And I love the crypt where the blue face guy is buried. The, uh, the, um, the, his, his coffin has a lovely like roll off and on oh, lid. He just opens and closes like nothing. Yeah, it's fantastic. You think uh, – that's of Yeah, that seems like a maybe – Maybe it should be more secure when you roll it on, but um, yeah. hey, I don't know. Maybe I don't... maybe he pushed it loose, so that's why it was so much easier to. Oh, I will true. tell you one of the failings of this film that my husband pointed out, and it's pretty obvious, is when he goes to the art dealer. You think he's setting the art dealer up to show up at the crypt, mm-hmm. so he's like, oh, "What yeah. are you doing?" And tell me about this ring. But he's not. He's like back in San Francisco when the dealer goes to Carmel. Yeah. And and then he gets killed, right? And it's like. That doesn't work. Why go mm-hmm. through all of that questioning and leading him on if you're not going to be there to catch him? Yeah, yeah, that does. Yeah, that is a strange moment. I, I wondered about that myself. Or, or he's just being really mean. <laughs> he's like, Maybe. yeah, I know where the ring is. Maybe. Maybe. Norlis, I might have a mean streak in him. He might, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, I'm looking on my left now, and they're in the, they're in the art gallery. He's about to... Uh... Yeah, I will say something somebody pointed out, and I don't, we have some feedback from this person, but I don't remember if he mentions it, but there's like a weird phallic sculpture sitting on the desk of the art dealer. I didn't notice ever. I've seen this movie like 10 times and I've never noticed it. And that was the first thing he saw. He took a still of it. And if you go on my Twitter, which is just, I think, made for TV mayhem, um, and scroll down a little, you'll find it. And it's hilarious. And if I can remember, I'll try to put an image of it when I post this podcast. Because it kind of has to be seen to be believed because it's really phallic and really weird. 
Yeah, I, d- I didn't see it either. Uh, yeah, when 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 the picture was posted, I was like, "Holy mackerel!" How did <laughs> no, I- it's huge. <laughs> yes, it's no- pink and it looks like a penis, and it's weird. <laughs> it's curved. It's very strange. It's got a very very lovely arc to it, I guess. Yeah, and uh, one of my friends who knows so much, I love Robert Mandan, commented, "I think it belongs to Robert Mandan." <laughs> <laughs> I wrote in my dreams. <laughs> So, but it's so what I thought was so funny about that was that there really is no except for that couple in the that rent out the room to yeah. Ellen's uh, sister. There's no comedy in this movie. No, and so I don't know if that sculpture is there to be sort of like if you're paying attention, mm-hmm. funny, yeah. or if it somebody just made a big phallic looking sculpture and they just put it because <laughs> they didn't know what to put on his desk. <laughs> I wonder if yeah, would you think it was in the script? I don't Please place giant phallic thing. On the corner of the desk. I wish I'd known enough to ask William F. Nolan then. Oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Norless Tapes is a... It's 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 definitely... It's it's an atmospheric film. It's got nice creepiness to it. It doesn't resonate with me like the night, the way the Night Stalker does, but I think it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I think it's... I think it is a mood piece more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's certainly not perfect, but... I, I, I don't want to say I like it more than Night Stalker because I feel like if I, I'm being sacrilegious. But I think, no, you could say. I think I do. And part of that is because I have a long history with Roy Thinnis as well. I just really mm-hmm. like him. He was also in the pilot. Well, he was in the whole series, but I've only seen the pilot to The Psychiatrist. Oh, sure. Yeah. One of those Mystery Wheel shows from NBC. And uh-huh. that was an amazing movie, too. And that was another character I think where somebody you could have dropped him out in some instances and put in. He plays a lot of those kind of characters. I think that's it. I want to analyze that, but I don't know what to say about it because he's not an everyman character. Like, no, no, like he's, he isn't. He's yeah. really good looking and he stands out and he's got a lot of presence. But at the same time, he plays kind of characters that are integral to the movie, but that I think could maybe able to take a step back mm-hmm. and let other parts of the film shine. And maybe that's why he gets those type of parts. Yeah, that could. Know? Well, he, he's also in, have you seen Codename Diamond Head? I haven't seen that yet. I have the ad though. I got the TV guide ad. Yeah, he's a he. Pl- he's a little more um, sort of down to earth in that well, one. I, I'll have to uh. see that. He's a really sweet guy. When I met him, it was like 2010. It was the same weekend that I met Larry Hagman and Linda Gray. Cool. It was a great weekend. Uh. And he had a ponytail. And nice. he's not online at all, but he has a website that somebody runs for him. And I, the website's not up anymore. But years ago, I wrote an article uh, about. Um, like B movie machismo or something, and <laughs> and I thought that uh, he was like the TV machismo. Yeah. And I was telling him that, and he seemed mildly amused <laughs> by me talking about him being machismo. Uh-huh. And, and he's like, "Where is that?" And I gave him the name of the website, and I don't know if he ever went and looked, but um, <laughs> he was very friendly. And I was mm-hmm. expecting uh, the way William F. Nolan had described him. And that's not what I got at all. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the one thing Norlis can do that Kolchak can is when Norlis goes in that art gallery and the, the one guy comes up to him and says, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I want to speak to whoever the guy in charge is. It's immediately, okay, take you right there. Whereas Kolchak, they would have given – like Columbo, they would have yeah. given him a look. And it's – you know, and although Columbo would have just had to pull out the badge and he could have got in, whereas yeah. Kolchak – would have gotten but you're out. right i mean the classes are apparent and when you compare the two you know yes he's definitely yeah. a higher class i mean just his apartment but also the way he carries himself the type of restaurants he eats at yeah. even where the mysteries take place or it's very refined and like upper class people you know 
Because they do that with, um, they, they say, yeah, Court was a sculptor. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And his parents were super wealthy and he lives on an estate in Carmel. And I thought, oh, okay, because I was going to say, I don't know that many famous sculptors. So I was expecting he'd have like a loft somewhere. Like, but no, no that, has, that was a mistake. He has an epic. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, everything about the movie is beautiful. As a matter of fact, we should probably, I don't know who did the cinematography. It is somebody named Ben Coleman. Okay, and yeah. I mean, I think he did a fabulous job. It's very, because this movie, I'm going to assume, was made for less than $450,000. Probably, yeah. But he did a really good job making it feel really cinematic, mm-hmm. I think. Oh, he did Galactica 1980. If oh, anything, boy. is cinematic. <laughs> he, <laughs> also did, the... he also did the regular Battlestar Galactica, which was a very epic <laughs> series. And it he was. did Dan August, the TV series. He did oh, Pretty yeah. Boys, Quincy. He did a lot of episodic television um, and some TV movies. He did... Uh, Key West, which I haven't seen. He did The Picture of Dorian Gray, which was a Dan Curtis production. Mm. And he did, um, looks like he did a lot of Dan August. That was the first things he really did. Oh, he also did The Eyes of Charles Sand. Okay. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. I oh, haven't. that talk about, that's, that's also good. gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah, it's really creepy. And he did The Haunts of the Very Rich as well. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing too. So he's got a real good eye and he's probably somewhat economical. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I will say I, I mentioned that I thought Dan Curtis didn't do action quite as well as Moxie, but um, there is there there is a shot when the woman in the in the car the the blue guy rises up behind her grabs her neck and she drives off the oh, road yeah. into the woods and there's a really lovely shot where the camera is placed just perfectly so when the car is going through the trees because you don't get sort of like proper depth of field. Right. It looks it looks like the car is going to hit several trees and you can't tell what's happening, but it kind of maneuvers its way through everything and out of the shot. It's like really a lovely and the camera just sits there, but it's perfectly placed. I guess so you're camera, eating your hat right now. I am eating my hat. Yeah, <laughs> kind kind of. It ain't a, it ain't a bad taste in hat. I'll yeah. be honest. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because they're so similar and yet they're mm. so different. These two movies. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what makes them great because you could definitely double feature these films. And even though you're basically watching the same story, I would even say that the bad guys even look somewhat similar. Yeah. But you don't feel like you're watching a carbon copy of the other film. Yeah, it's just Norlis has a strange thing in the end of it with the sculpture. Oh, yeah. Well, they're both supernatural. Uh-huh. So we'll say that. I mean, we can talk about the ending. I mean, I don't mind. So the sculpture turns out the blood he was collecting was being put into this clay. And the clay um, was being used to build the sculpture, which was like a demon creature. And what was his name again? Like, like Sorgoth or Sogroth or. Oh, my God. Why didn't I write that down? I oh, Sargoth. Sargoth. Yeah, and so um, what's so funny about the scene, though, is that he sculpted everything except he didn't put the eyes in. And then they're hiding in the studio, Norlis and uh, Ellen, and then the, uh, the the monster shows up, and he puts the eyes in the sculpture. And then, and then he just does a little bit of the brow, and then that's it. And I'm like, you could yeah. have done that like yesterday. Huzzah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you were so close to being done. Did you just were too tired to finish? <laughs> and so that's all he has to do. And then um, it brings the demon to life. But Norlis somehow had figured out this sort of potion that oh, you yeah, make that yeah. you build a circle around the demon and it can't, and then you light it on fire and it can't escape that circle. Mm-hmm. And according to him, it's because of the stuff he used, but I think it's probably because it's on fire. Yes. <laughs> <'Cause> he is <laughs> flammable, we find out. So he traps them both in the circle, 
but the and everything burns down but they only find one body at the end and yeah. um i guess the question is whose body is it and i'm assuming it's um the husband and, the, and that um sargoth got it's, away oh boy and that's why uh norlis is so scared at the beginning Yes, you know what? There's a whole fan theory about that, and I'll talk about that when we get to the trivia. Yeah, there's some. A lot of people have speculated about what became of Norlis because we never found out. Yeah, and so they leave it. They really do leave it hanging right at yeah. the end. You know. No. I will say, and I'll mention it in the where I got it from when we get to the feedback. But somebody brought up something really interesting that I never thought of before, and somebody asked if this was the first found footage movie. You know what? That was really intriguing. I was like, you know what? I think, I mean, there may be other movies where people leave tapes. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. But I never thought of them in terms of found footage before. But they yeah. are. Yeah, technically, yeah. Yeah, and, audio. Yeah, Yeah, and it's really interesting to think of this as being part of the found footage series. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I, ne I never thought of that. Yeah. yeah, I was just, it just blew me away. And I was like, oh, my God, I need to think about this. But then there is the, um, there, there are the occasional scene, like the scene with Mama and Papa. Which clearly Norlis wasn't at at all, and um, yeah. he's—I I suppose he could say on the tape. That, oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, he's—I guess that's interesting too, because you have to speculate. Like he has to put together mm -hmm. what he wouldn't know. All of the mom and papa stuff, but he'd know she got killed. The monster was at the window. Yeah, yeah. so there's nobody to witness it. Because mm -hmm. even the like the, the, there are the moments with Kolchak where he's not there, but that's basically those moments where you see the women getting attacked. I guess in some ways, though, I mean, if I'm going to link it to found footage, so like Cannibal Holocaust is found uh -huh. footage, but I mean, it's obvious that it's it's not one camera. It yeah. cuts and it zooms in and it's pans. And so, but it's considered found footage because it's, they literally find footage. It just mm -hmm. happened to be pre-edited before they were horribly murdered. Uh -huh. And so I guess you could make a leap of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. Because back then, it wasn't so much the realism of the found footage as it was just the fact that it was tape left behind. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But you're right. I never thought about that. There are some scenes he's he wouldn't know what had happened, and mm -hmm. he's speculating. That's really interesting because that makes him unreliable to begin with. Oh, yeah. Huh. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, my God. I fell an essay. Woohoo! Nor less. <laughs> Nor less. Oh, my God. Now I'm going to have to go back to school so I can... <laughs> oh no but um yeah so there's a lot of interesting aspects to this film and um i didn't see it as a kid at all i saw it i guess i rented it from eddie brant's in la okay before it came out on dvd and um and i really really liked it and then i bought the dvd when it came out and um and i've just that's just what i've had ever since mm -hmm. and it's one of the few tv movies that has gotten a really nice dvd release there's no features on it but it's a very beautiful print mm-hmm so it's, and I think it might be too expensive now, but if it ever comes down in price, oh. people should try to pick it up. Yeah. I just, I just saw it for the first time recently. So, um, that's great. I, and and you liked it, but you just didn't love it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was, it was a lot of fun to watch. Like, um, uh, what's that one movie, the cat creature. Oh, I love the cat creature. I, I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed that one oh, where I, I, will such a good movie. I will probably watch it again, but I don't know that I'd put it in my absolute tops. Right. Oh, I can't wait to talk about the cat creature. There's some stuff in there <laughs> that is so amazing and interesting, and um, I can't wait. Yeah, I think it is a little bit like the cat creature. It might even be well. It's not as this is much better, but there's a TV movie with Jack Rambo called Good for, Against Evil. Oh, sure. Uh, but, who else is in this? I can't remember the female actress. It's in all oh. those fifty packs. It's really easy to find. Is it, 
is it Colleen Camp or, or Kim Cattrall so. or I don't think so. Ah, uh, heck, I'm gonna. I can't I'm, rem- I'm not even sure I remember the actress. Okay. But I know Dak Rambo's in it. Definitely. Yeah, you can't forget Dak. <laughs> you never forget. But it's it's a, it's a mood piece, you know. It's definitely about the mood. I think now that we've picked it apart a little, I think you can. It's easier to pick apart than the Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the Night Stalker has a more organic feel to it. You know what I mean? I like how yeah. slowly it comes to the real and this and that. But Norlis, I think, is more they're pushing their certain things, and there are that unreliable narrator thing just hit me. But maybe that's the point because he's seeing the yeah. unbelievable, right? Yeah. How do you explain that? Oh, that's the power of Norlis. I wonder, has there ever, has, was there any fan fiction or any sort of follow-up to this? So, well, or? there was supposed to be a sequel called The Return, and it mm-hmm. was it's written. It exists. I've never seen it. William F. Nolan wrote it. And it was about Norlis going back in time to his childhood. Oh. And wow. I, I, so I don't know that it explores Norlis, like what became of him, but I think it's supposed to give you more about how Norlis became the person that he is. Okay. Well, I think. I'm not real sure. Okay. No, that's cool. That's cool. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Cause... Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I go, I go for that. Yeah. I, okay I'd, I'd enjoy that. I, sure I, I didn't know I, I didn't know if he'd be the kind of character where you'd like go online and discover like reams of fan fiction. You know what? You know, that's like... a good question. I don't, I didn't look, but there are, there are stuff, there's stuff on the IMDb message boards. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, where they are. What do you think happened to Norlis? And I have a little bit of that in my trivia, mm-hmm. which oh, I can cool. go to if you want. Yes, please. Let's hit okay. the trivia. I like Dan said this aired on February twenty first, nineteen seventy three, on NBC, which I thought was interesting because the Night Stalker did so well that you would think that they would ABC would want Dan Curtis mm. to do everything. S- stick them. around, yeah. Yeah, but NBC ended up doing it. Uh, it ran against on ABC uh, another TV movie called "And No One Could Save Her," which I meant to look up. And I totally hmm. forgot. And on CBS, I think it ran against Medical Center, which had Everett and Cannon. And Cannon also ran against Night Stalker. Hmm. But they keep okay. putting him up against the good ones. The movie was originally titled Demon. It, pre- it premiered about one month after The Night Strangler aired. This time, Curtis directed and William F. Nolan stepped in as screenwriter. He met Curtis through Matheson, and this was their first collaboration. Uh, it was adapted from a story by Fred Mustard Stewart. In contrast to Stalker, Norlis, Norlis, Nolan said the only the story only featured a living dead man, but most everything else in the script was new. Okay. The original title of The Night Stalker was The Kolchak Tapes and was the inspiration for naming of this TV movie. Also, there's a band called The Norlis Tapes. Oh, really? Yeah, and I haven't heard them, but they have videos on YouTube. So uh, you should check them out. I've been meaning to do that for a while, and I just haven't. This was filmed in San Francisco, Monterey, and Carmel, and it looks beautiful. Um, Oh, yes. uh, Everything in this movie is beautiful. There was a proposed sequel called The Return, which David Norlis goes back in time to his childhood, like I said, and there is a completed script. It It got some nice critical reception, including from The Hollywood Reporter, who called it fun. Roy Thinnes said he laughed when he got the news that the movie was not picked up for a series because he wondered what the hell happened to Norlis. Yeah, I think he actually said he laughed his ass off because uh, he was like, what happened? Nick Dimitri, who played Court, uh, was the stuntman and worked as a double for the likes of Sean Connery and William Smith. Oh, wow. Which gives you some idea of his size because William Smith is a giant. And the fact yes. that somebody else is doing William Smith stunts, those have to be tough stunts. Yeah. Wow. You know, because that guy can do anything. Dimitri was also part of a Muscle Man review in the 1950s, just in case you're curious. I, uh, I was actually. I was going to ask <laughs> Uh, Claude Aikens worked on three Dan Curtis productions, Night Stalker, Norless Tapes, and the Wide World Mystery Shadow of Fear. 
uh, where Dan Curtis was the executive producer. That is actually available on DVD through Dark Sky Films, and the music was also by Bob Cobert. Um, that's actually a really good episode of uh, The Wide World Mystery. I quite like it. It's got Tom Selleck in an early role, pre-mustache. And it also features Phil Carey, who played Asa Buchanan on One Life to Live. So it's definitely worth checking out. I'm under the impression, oh, I already said this, that Bob Cobert did all of Curtis's film scores. When he did the score for Norlis, he decided to not do jazz, like detective jazz, like he did with uh, Kolchak. And he, he decided to do a more traditional sound. Mm-hmm. And I'll play some of the music when we leave the show at the end. The same mansion was actually used in the Night Stalker episode Vampire. Oh, wow. Which I don't even remember writing that down. But now that I see it, somebody was asking about the mansion, and I would actually like to know where it's shot and if we can see pictures of what it looks like now. Mm-hmm. If anybody knows where that mansion is, I would like to check it out. Some online theories floating around about what happened to David Norris includes him being trapped between two worlds and also Court still being alive. Oh, Court, not Sargoth? Sargoth. Um, only because only one body was found. And that he, and I guess Sargoth, or I guess Court, also kills Norlis's publisher. Oh, gosh. And assumingly Norlis as well. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, um, I suppose, yes, if the publisher's there all day listening to the uh, cassettes, he probably wasn't paying attention when evil Yeah, that would be hot. really, that would be nice if they could, like, if they had added an ending just in case. Yeah. But I don't know. I like it being open-ended. It's just frustrating yeah. because we don't get an actual ending at any point but i also like the the way you feel at the end of it yeah like oh uh, yeah yeah it's, it really is kind of it leaves you hanging in a lovely fashion where it's like chapter two you know and then yeah. it's like, uh, his tapes were so well labeled yeah wow he's good and all he's that good. was on one tape yeah. he had like 30 <laughs> tapes on his desk yeah apparently i was like my first thought was wait a minute that was chapter one yeah <laughs> that's right he does <laughs> say chapter two right and you're yeah, like really wow that's a lot. That's a lot, David. <laughs> it is. It's a lot. You're a little verbose. Uh, yeah, and he does. He does uh, engage in a little purple prose during some of his um, uh, narration. He does. Yes. Yes, but uh, we we let him. We let it ride. I think so. I think he's just trying to get us in the mood. Yeah, he really mm-hmm. likes talking about the bullet gray. Sky. Oh yeah, the bullet gray sky. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. He's really into his descriptors. <laughs> I appreciated it. And that that's pretty much all my it's really this was a tough movie to research. There there's yeah. really not that much about it. Except I got it out of that Dan Curtis oh god, I wish I remember the name of it. I think it's Television of Terrors book. Um it's actually on our website. I have a list of recommended readings. Oh yes. Yeah. I only have like four books on there, but uh this the Dan Curtis book is one of them. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's got lots and lots of information about his T V movies. I may may I, I, I just flipped over to it's slight tangent. Good against evil. Kim Cattrall is in it, but she's not the leading lady. Okay. Um, however, on the same day that Good Against Evil aired, May twenty second, nineteen seventy seven, do you know what other ninety minute movie aired that became a short lived series that you enjoy? Lottery? No, it's too early. No, uh, no I don't know. Lucan. Oh well, I would have watched Lucan. Yeah, the same day is Good Against Evil. That's crazy. I would say Lucan's the better TV movie. I've seen Probably, both. Because yeah. Because Good Against Evil, I think, has a lot of atmosphere, and I kind of like the tone of it, but it's I don't even really remember the story at all. Like, if I can tell you Dak Rambo's in it, and that yes. there's, the girl that stars in it wears a lot of bell bottoms, and she looks great. But if you ask me about Lucan, <laughs> I could tell you all about him. That, you know? That'll be a special... Uh... Non mini sewed. Yeah, I'm not going to go into that now. But uh, but yeah, I would say like, although that's a good question. Like, because I would have been too young to really be picking movies at that point. I would have been asleep when this originally aired. Okay. But I think 
as a seven-year-old or however old I was when it aired, that would have been really difficult to pick one because one's like ghosts and scary stuff. And the other one's about a guy who grew up in the woods by wolves. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could you, you know, what kid wouldn't love to see that? Yeah, it's fantastic. I've seen it. I mean? yeah, I, I, I love the series when I watched it. No, it's it. great. Yeah. But like um, both of those uh, synopses mm. are enough to. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. there's no VCR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh. You really, what, you really do just have to. What did oh. you watch, uh, listeners? Yes, listeners, tell us what you, which, <laughs> what you watch, please. Lucan hmm. or Good Against Evil. Hmm. And I'll tell you how you can let us know. Yes. You can contact us at tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com, where we have a contact us page. Um, you could go straight to our email, which is tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show or on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. Or if you just want to talk to us personally, like if you don't feel comfortable telling me what you watched because it was good against evil, you can find Dan on Twitter at Danny Slacks One. Or if you feel comfortable telling me, you can find me at Made for TV Mayhem. Yay! Yay! Hooray! And I think um, I think that's about it for the Norlis tapes. That I think is, we got yeah, that I think covered. Putting, I think we're putting David Norlis to bed for the last time. Sleep well, David. Until we get that second cassette rolling. Oh uh, yeah, Chapter Two: The Return. We do have a little feedback, though, so just four minutes. Uh, and we actually have a new bumper mm. that was given to us by Shannon, who is at Resting Willpower. Yay! Twitter. And how do you spell that, Dan? Do you remember? Uh, isn't isn't Resting Willpower missing the E? At I the end say. of the hour, yeah. Yeah, I believe so on Twitter. Yeah. And um, and you can actually, she has some unrecorded, unrecorded, she has unrecorded music on her. <laughs> <laughs> She has some music on her website, which you can find through her Twitter, and it's all yes. really good, and you need to download yeah. it immediately. And she just posted something called the um, the Medley of Unfinished Songs, which is about 43 minutes oh. of piece of song after piece of song after, and it's fantastic. It I really haven't heard that yet. Yeah, it's really good. It's got a really nice flow. It's extremely catchy. There's some really wonderfully strange lyrics. It's good stuff. She's stupidly talented. Yeah, she is. <laughs> it's ridiculous because her Agreed. music's really good, and it's just her doing yeah. all of it, and it, it's really good. And she tries to play it down. She's very modest. But, she is. But it's it's quite good, and I think everybody would enjoy it. So anyway, let's let's check out her bumper. It's pretty much. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh, yes. There you go. <laughs> it's really cool, isn't it? <laughs> that was great. Just one more time. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is such a nice <laughs> echo in my ear. I like it. It's really good. It's great. Well, wonderful. So I will say we didn't get a huge amount of feedback this time, but um, when I posted that I was going to be watching the Norlis tapes, a couple people responded. Um, DVD Newsflash, who you can find at DVD Newsflash on Twitter, and also they have a Facebook page. I think their Facebook page has more articles. They post, they're constantly posting really interesting film articles. They just posted, I love the Norlis tapes too. And then my friend Shane Bitterling, which is, he's at Shane Bitterling, that's S-H-A-N-E-B-I-T-T-E-R-L-I-N-G. Um, he just wrote one of my absolute faves, which I agree with as well. So we got some Norlis fans out there. And actually our feedback is about the Norlis tapes. That's what's so interesting. So the Kolchak stuff, I thought lots of people were going to email us because it's a really well-known, well-watched film, but nobody did. And it even got shared on a Kolchak Facebook page. Somebody took it over there and was like, hey, look, they're going to be doing a podcast. And I thought, oh, here we go. We're going to get some responses. And nobody contacted us. 
Yeah. That's weird. It is a little weird, yeah. You know, I get it. A lot of people don't like to leave feedback. And, uh, you know, I actually have no idea how many people listen. And so when I don't get any feedback, it doesn't mean one thing to me. You know, I mean, I, yeah, exactly, I love yeah. feedback. But as far as, like, me gauging who's listening and who's not, I don't I have no idea. So, um, but we do encourage it. And you don't have to talk about the movies we're reviewing. You can talk about anything. Um, mostly TV movies, but, you know, we love TV shows as well. If there's anything you've heard us talk about or there's anything you want to bring up, just to talk about or something you want to suggest we watch, you know, anything like that. We'd love to hear it. Anyway, so this came from Gore Blimey. And we have a little bit to say about Gore Blimey after we read this, but I'll read this real quick. Hi, guys. Gore Blimey here from the Trilogy of Terror podcast and on Twitter as I am Gore Blimey. Great choice of movies this episode, as always. I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with the Norlis tapes until earlier this year when I watched it for the first time. I won't talk about the plot, as I'm sure you'll cover it in plenty detail, so I'll just share my overall feelings about the film. Using an audio tape as exposition works very well here. It really draws the viewer into the story, especially as the person speaking has since vanished under mysterious circumstances. The narration also gives a sort of film noir feel, especially in later scenes with the, when the heavy rain kicks in. The score is great, and the, atmosphere music, and the atmospheric music adds so much to the tension and mood, and there's an interesting use of low camera angles. It's dated slightly by a couple of the 70s TV movie tropes. For example, when the camera suddenly zooms in as a character makes an important point, or the occasional dum-dum-da, I don't think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce it, bursts of music to highlight a startling revelation in the script. But those are very minor quibbles, and they do add to the charm. There are a couple of things that did amuse me, though. There's the curator Norlis meets in the art gallery who seems to be stroking a dead cat. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's right, the cat never moves. And that scene is almost stolen by a huge pink phallic object standing on his desk. And there's a police station where the rifles are there, unlocked, ready to grab next to the door. <laughs> I mean, it's not as if criminals or unsavory types would be around in a place like that. <laughs> there's a lot of gun racks in this. If you're into guns, yeah. this is your movie. What this movie does exceptionally well, though, is frighten its audience. Yes, there is a cat scare, but to be fair, this was probably before it became the cliche we know from horror cinema. There are several jump scares which are well handled and worked really well for me. The scene with Martha in the motel contained the best fright moment of the whole movie. And please don't tell me I was the only one who thought her running to the shower was a nice homage to Hitchcock's Psycho. That's really a good point. And the other standout scary part for me was when Norlis and Ellen are chased by her undead husband and he rips the door off the car. Brilliant music, camera work, fast editing, and performances all around. I love the simplicity of the undead man's makeup. It's chilling because it's so it's being so of being so simple, not despite it. Especially coupled with the actor's performance and the inhuman noises he makes. In fact, the acting overall is excellent, and I really like the main characters. I certainly won't complain that Roy Thinnis spends the first part of the movie with his shirt wide open. Though <laughs> I won't complain either, Gore Blimey, trust me. Though I was a bit puzzled why Angie Dickinson seemed to be dressed like an 80-year-old lady. You know, I, kind of, I didn't think of it in those terms, but she is very proper in this film. Yes. Lots of turtlenecks, and she looks great, though. The Norlis tapes tick so many boxes for me. It has the mystery of a missing central character, creepy buildings, secret passages, voodoo, a zombie, lots of dark atmosphere, great scares, and an engaging cast. It also introduced me to the beautiful Bixby Bridge, which I don't think I'd seen or heard of before, and which I was immediately Googling after watching this. You know what? We should look that up. I don't remember the Bixby, Bixby Bridge. The ending suggests that this was meant to be a pilot for a series, and it's such a shame it was never picked up and developed. I wanted to see more and would definitely have watched it. Anyway, I look forward to hearing what you have to say about this and the Night Stalker. As always, enjoy this show. All the best, Gore. Thank hey. you so much, Gore Blimey. So I want to... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
Oh, I just said thank you, Gore. Um, I wanted to mention that Gore Blimey does have a podcast, which you mentioned here. Today he debuted it, so by the time you get this episode, it'll be like a week ago he debuted it. It's called Trilogy of Terror, but it's not about TV movies, um, But I, although we love the title. It's, <laughs> um, it's actually where he takes films in threes, and I don't know that he's going to change it up by theme or by actor or what, but the first episode is three Lamberto Baba movies, and he covers Macabre. Demons and uh, Delirium photos of I don't know how you say it Goya Joya or Goya, Goya. Yeah. it's Gloria when they dub it um, mm-hmm. that's an amazing movie I think it's it, they're very short I haven't actually listened to it yet Dan you have right I did I liked it yeah it's very he's he's very very succinct he's got some great uh, great opinions and uh, and he's got a lot of nice feedback actually yeah. a lot of, lot of nice folks. Uh... Leave well, feedback. Well, so we kind of know him through another. Well, I should say he's available in several different ways. So you can find him on iTunes or Stitcher. But he's actually being hosted by Gentleman Grindhouse Records, which is I think just GentlemanGrindhouseRecords.com. So they are the people who do the Strange and Deadly show. And so we know him through the Strange and Deadly show. Um, so like that's a really amazing podcast, which I've mentioned a thousand times. So I'll just say it's amazing, and everybody should listen to it. They have kind of a family of listeners. And we've all become really friendly on Twitter uh, over the last few months. And so we've gotten to know him pretty well, even though none of us know his real name or anything about yeah. him. But you get to know him as a person really well. And he's really funny. He's really smart. He has a really lovely accent. Um, yeah. He did a great uh, feedback for the Strange and Deadly Headless Eyes episode where he talks about the woman at the beginning who rips out the guy's eye or stabs his eye, whatever she does to him. And she's got all this food next to the bed. <laughs> she's wearing lingerie and he just talks about it for like two or three sentences but it's so funny it still makes me laugh when i think about it <laughs> yeah because it's gross you know yeah but it's really yeah. funny and he just has a really good sense of humor he picks a lot of stuff out in films that i don't necessarily notice and um and they're always really humorous or thoughtful so yeah, and the the thing about his show is that he really has a he has like a bbc announcer voice yeah so it's a really great voice throughout it's very um you you listen to what he has to say yeah, yeah, he's definitely engaging. And um, he's also on Facebook. He has a Facebook page just called Trilogy of Terror Podcast. And when I joined today, there were only three of us. I think there's four now because I know Nate signed up. We should all go out there and find it and support him. Uh, everybody does podcasts for free because they love it and it's fun. When you find one that's really engaging and you like the podcast, you should definitely support it. And that's what we're going to do here. So thank you, Gore. for. And also he sends us thank great you. feedback. Just the feedback yeah. alone they sent should tell you that he's he really knows his stuff. That's it for us. Yeah, I may I uh, oh, just yes. I two two things. One, um, I want to dedicate this show, if I may, to um, three beings who have recently um, passed um, from my life. Um, about a month ago, my sister-in-law, Anne Christie, also known as A.V. Christie, she was a wonderful poet, uh, died. And she, her and I, she's a great writer, and her and I used to discuss uh, writing all the time. Uh, about three or so weeks ago, my cat Lobo, mm. uh, who, who um, has been with me since uh, July of 2000, died. Uh, and then the day before this podcast was recorded, my, my mother-in-law, Julia Fatabene, Juju, um, died. And um, so it's been a kind of a strange few months but i i yeah. just wanted to um i just wanted to dedicate this episode to ann and to uh lobo and to ma juju and just say uh you know wherever you are we hope you got itunes there because we're not on stitcher maybe <laughs> maybe sometime soon 
But, um, but yeah, so I want to dedicate this to them. And I also wanted to mention that I, um, I am on two podcasts coming up that I recorded over the weekend. Oh. Um, there, it's a, one of the podcasts is called Pod Dylan, P O D Dylan. It's a po- Bob Dylan podcast. And it's oh. with the gentleman, it's, it's with a gentleman named Rob Kelly. Who uh, is best known? I think online he ha- he runs the Aquaman Shrine, which has been running forever, and does like an Aquaman post every day. Um, he also co-hosts a, a, a podcast called Who's Who, which is based on an old DC comic, which is probably one of my favorite podcasts. And he and I discuss the Bob Dylan song "You Ain't Going Nowhere," which features in Curse the Headless Horseman, which is an early '70s horror film. Um, well, it doesn't feature. They kind of sneak it in. I don't think they mentioned there's a Bob Dylan song in there. But um, he he and I discussed that, and that should be by time you hear this. I think if you check, just look at Pod Dylan or the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you will find it. And also, he has another podcast called the Film and Water uh, Podcast. And for his fiftieth show, he's talking about Golan Globus films. And he's going crazy on the canon films. And somewhere in there, there will be a 10 to 15 segment of he and I discussing John Derrick's classic, Bolero. Oh, sure. So so, so um, those those are just two things that I just did a few days ago. So, um, hey, if you want to hear me talk more, why not? I have, I have no proof of this, but I have a memory <laughs> of my brother <laughs> telling me that he was going to the movies with his girlfriend, but they were deciding between seeing Bolero or Chud. <laughs> but I actually don't think those movies came out in the same year. I think I looked it up, and but I have a memory of him saying that. I think I think I think they're around both around like eighty four ish. Yeah, they? that could be. I can't remember, but it's a, see, I just have a memory of him saying that. But I feel like it was even before nineteen eighty four. Oh wow! Because I don't remember seeing my brother as a teenager. I only remember seeing him like as a preteen. Uh-huh. I mean, I did see him as a teenager, but only once or twice. And okay. I don't know. I feel like I was in California when he said, hey, we're deciding between Bolero and Chud. And I was like, wow, the 80s are awesome. Like, I recognized how cool the 80s were right at that moment. That is cool. Yeah. You know, when you have, when that's the decision you have to make on a Friday night, it's cool. That's a fantastic decision. Yeah. yeah. It's wow. Cool. Wow. I'd well, love to know what they chose. Oh. Um, If you want to go ahead and when those go live, send me the links to them and I'll add them to this oh, sure. post yeah. when I post yeah. the audio. Thank you. Cool. Um, okay. And, uh, I think that's it. So we're changing it up a little because I'm in my last semester of school and I'm actually working two internships and I'm going to be taking a class and my intern, my second internship is actually class and an internship, which means I'm going to be really crazy busy for like the next couple months. Then I graduate and I won't be as busy. So it's hard for me to get these podcasts put together, even with a month's notice, because I just don't have that much free time right now. So we're going to be doing like roundtables. I was going to do two things at once, but I think I'm going to split them up because it'll just be easier. So we're going to take uh, some time in a couple of weeks and we're going to look at our favorite actors from TV movies. And then we'll come back and we'll do another episode about our favorite actresses. So we're each going to pick an actor that we really love. Just one. We have to find one and stick with it. Oh boy. And then we're just going to talk about why we like them and maybe talk a little bit about their films and, and I'll, there'll be sound bites and feedback and all that stuff, but there won't be full film reviews. Mm-hmm. It'll be like little capsule reviews of, and I already know who my favorite actor is. It's the actress that I'm having a hard time with, mm-hmm. but um, so that'll be next. And I'll post uh, 
an update on our website when I know what date we'll be recording. But I think that will help get us through the summer. So because right now we're recording once a month, which is probably okay. But I think it was meant to be like every other week. Yeah, yeah, like every two weeks. Yeah, yeah and it's really hard to do that uh, with the doing two films and getting mm -hmm. everything together and doing the research and getting the sound bites and do you know what I mean? So yeah. um, we're gonna try to like take a step back and just sh spread the love. Yes, yes, I think it's a great idea. So we'll let you know when that's happening. And as for now, we're gonna uh, leave with um, the Norlis tapes. So good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you.